Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 13, Jane Eyre, by Charlotte Bronte. I have a strange feeling with regard to you. As if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly knotted to a similar string in you. And if you were to leave, I'm afraid that cord of communion would snap. And I have a notion that I'd take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, you'd forget me. How? I have lived a full life here. I have not been trampled on. I have not been petrified. I have not been excluded from every glimpse of what is bright. I have known you, Mr. Rochester. And it strikes me with anguish to be torn from you. Then why must you leave? Because of your wife. I have no wife. But you are to be married. Jane, you must stay. I've become nothing to you. Am I a machine without feelings? Do you think that because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, that I am soulless and heartless? I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. And if God had blessed me with beauty and wealth, I could make it as hard for you to leave me as it is for I to leave you. I'm not speaking to you through mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, as if we'd passed through the grave and stood at God's feet equal. As we are. As we are. I am a free human being with an independent will which I now exert to leave you. Then let your will decide your destiny. I offer you my hand. My heart. Jane, I ask you to pass through life at my side. You are my equal and my likeness. Will you marry me? Are you mocking me? you doubt me? Entirely. Your bride is Miss Ingram. Miss Ingram. She is the machine without feelings. It's you, you rare unearthly thing. Poor and obscure as you are. Please accept me as your husband. I must have you for my own. You wish me to be your wife? I swear it. You love me? I do. And so I will marry you. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. So we're 13 episodes in now. Hopefully you know that this podcast is all about books and literature. And each month we're looking through one particular piece of literature, seeing if we can even consider it literature and whether it's worth whatever negative or positive reputation that it may have. 
So I am Stella, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Tom. Hey. <laughs> oh, man. I, I think we were both slain by Bertha. But I think that we will we will somehow come back through it, just like the fire that devastated Thornfield Hall, we will rise again from the ashes. So I'm super excited about this, and <laughs> because Jane Eyre is my favorite, and, and now there's sort of continuity with this show, at least on my side, because Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier, was somewhat using uh, um, Jane Eyre as, as a model you know loosely Uh so there's some there's a connection here this was actually one of my revenge books but i wanted to do it even even though tom didn't make me mad or anything but this was it's coming out in my birthday month and i decided i was going to be selfish and do that so we have jane Eyre, which is lovely i'm so excited to talk about this this is we've not done this for a while but how would you describe jane Eyre with emojis a crying girl in a house. <laughs> um, I don't. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure if there are crying girl emojis, but perhaps there is. I mean, there's practically, depending on the type of phone you have, there are many emojis. I would mm-hmm. say that I'd certainly have a girl and a house of some sort, and uh, maybe an older man. Uh, I know there's not really middle aged, but like an older, an older person, and then maybe a ghost. <laughs> And so hopefully uh. you'd be able to, to pick that out. If you wanted to, you could have the, the girl, then the ghost, and then the man, so that it's you know symbolically separating the two of them, and then the house, and then perhaps a flame or something at the end. So I think that's how I would ah, how I would tackle Jane Eyre if I were talking with emojis. Well, this, I mean, I could go on and on about my history, and I will at some point. But, Tom, what was your history with the book? I sprung this on you. Were you prepared for this? Is this your first time? Uh, this is my first time reading it. Um, it was I'm trying to think of why I never was assigned it ever, um, either in, in, in high school or college. And I guess whoever's course I was taking assigned other authors or other books instead of it, um, like Dickens or Jane Austen or, or, or you know, or whatever. Sure. So, no, this is the first time I read it. In fact, I, I'm reading my, my wife's copy, which she bought at the University of Bookstore, uh, a Virginia bookstore back in, for, uh, back in 1996 or 97. It's the Penguin Classics edition with the, uh, the old school Penguin Classics with the, um, ivory border around the title and the black spine with some sort of color code that I never really figured out what the color was, but this was, uh, stood for, but it was red in this case. Okay. So, so yeah, this is my first okay. time reading. It. This is about my third time reading it. I, I believe that I read it pretty early on after the Rory's reading list was compiled and I feel like going into it I had heard a lot but I may have had some trepidations about reading it and then after reading it oh my goodness just fell in love and even though I had only read it that one time I would absolutely recommend it to people and think if I ever heard anyone speak of Jane Eyre I would get into a conversation with them I then reread it in about maybe 2000 
11 or 12 and I ended up buying my own copy because I loved it so much and I thought you need to have those books that you love so much and I just wanted to read it again and and Jane Eyre for me is some is a book that even though I don't read it every year because I know some people have books that they like to continually read every year and I think they grasp something and and certainly I could as well but I almost don't want to numb myself to to the beauty of this book and and how it captures me each time I feel like I I really (laughs) just remember so many details about it like I was even just thinking before recording this, you know, I, I vividly remember all of these things. And even so, because I, I could give a really good plot synopsis without having reread it, rereading it, it just like comes alive again. You're like, oh my gosh, it, it's so beautiful. And, and I love this so much. So my history is, it's certainly, it's a love story for me anyways. And, and this is one of my favorites, if not my favorite, because uh, Gone with the Wind is, is very much up there. Well... I did want to go into the real-life backstory, obviously, of of the author. So I found this lovely website called victorianweb.org, and I was looking through, and they had a a nice, they they called it a short biography of Charlotte, and I guess it was shorter than what you could potentially find in a book. But I was trying to this morning go through and see if I could pare it down and give a nice little summary of everything. But when I was reading through it, I felt like all of these details are really important because it gives such a context to the book and you can see how much she is pulling from real life. So I'm not going to read it verbatim, uh, though pretty close, but I am going to go through many pieces of her life just so you can get a sense of who Charlotte Bronte is. So she was born in 1816, and she's the third daughter of Reverend Patrick Bronte. So right off the bat, we're getting somewhere because Christianity and religion is is, is so huge in this book, and there are many themes running throughout. And her mother's name was Maria, and her brother Patrick Branwell was born in 1817. Her sisters Emily and Anne in 1818 and 1820. And uh, unfortunately, Mrs. Bronte died uh, the following year after they moved to Hayworth in 1820. So the four eldest Bronte daughters were enrolled as pupils at the clergy daughter school at Cowan Bridge. And unfortunately, the following year, Maria and Elizabeth, who were the two eldest daughters, became ill, left the school, and died. And after that, because of you know the family tragedy, Charlotte and Emily were brought home. Mr. Bronte actually brought home a a box of wooden soldiers for Branwell to play with, but uh, the four children ended up playing with these soldiers, conceived of of and began to write in great detail about an imaginary world which they called Angria, and so I think you get a sense of uh, these children all having imaginations and being very creative. Charlotte became a pupil at the school at Rowhead in 1831, but she left the following year to teach her sisters at home, and then she returned (laughs) to Rowhead had to become a governess. Do you see all these things that are coming together? Uh, and then for a time, her sister Emily also attended the same school, but she actually returned home after becoming homesick. Uh, Charlotte does become a full-time governess in the Sidgwick family, but then returns home to be with family, so I think family is a big theme here. And the three sisters decided that they were going to open up a school, but unfortunately it failed just because they were not able to get any responses from their advertisements. 
And later, after that failure, something wonderful happened, and it's that Charlotte discovers Emily's poems. And so they decide to publish a selection of her poems, uh, of all three sisters as well, you know, specifically Emily. And they ended up using pseudonyms, Currer, Elvis, and Acton Bell. And Charlotte also completed The Professor, which was actually rejected for publication. But... Uh, the following year, Charlotte's Jane Eyre, Emily's Wuthering Heights, and Anne's Agnes Grey were all published, but still under the Bell pseudonyms. When they were visiting their, Charlotte and Anne specifically visiting their publishers in London, uh, their true identities were revealed, so there's some, some comic stuff in here as well. And unfortunately, Branwell, Bronte died, which is very tragic because he was an alcoholic and a drug addict, so perhaps there's some uh, John Reed, a little bit of John Reed in him. But uh, there's a lot of, I mean, I could continue going on, obviously. And I would say, arguably, Charlotte has probably the most success out of all the siblings. I, I guess potentially, you know, Emily Bronte <laughs> scholars might disagree, perhaps. But she started moving around in literary circles, and she even makes the acquaintance of Thackeray, who wrote Vanity Fair. That's all my reading list, but I've yet to read it. Uh, just finally, some, some love information on Charlotte. Uh, there's a reverend named A.B. Nichols. He was a curate of Hayworth. Remember those curates that we found in the War of the Worlds? And he proposed marriage to Charlotte. And unfortunately, the father rejected this union violently is what the website says. <laughs> and actually, Charlotte was in, she was not in love with him and may have pitied him, and she actually refuses him. So she ends up getting married however, with Mr. Nichols, so I'm not sure how there was a, uh, there was a change of heart, to be sure. And later on in 1854, she was expecting a child, but caught pneumonia, so another, another tragic ending here. It, it unfortunately ended her life, so. <sighs> tragic things with this family. I know that there's, I cannot recall the film, I remember watching it with my mother, but it's about the Brontes, and it's like one of the most depressing films that I've ever seen because it's it's just not <laughs> it's not a story of hope but uh, I think I, I obviously you know just listening to that hopefully for readers and listeners uh, you get a sense of who Jane Eyre is and this is one of the reasons why I love Jane Eyre as a character uh, but I won't reveal all until we get to that so just think about all this that I've said. Obviously, Jane is sent to Lowood, and it was a boarding school, and you've got Charlotte, who also had a similar experience. Uh, you've got, unfortunately, Helen Burns dying tragically, and this could, of course, be referencing Charlotte's sisters Elizabeth and Maria. Um, you have the... Uh, Gothic Manor of Thornfield Hall that could have been potentially inspired by North Lees Hall, which was near Hathersage in the Peak District. I feel bad because if there are English people that are listening to this, I could be butchering everything. Uh, and it's also suggested, has been suggested, that Wycollar Hall in Lancashire, close to Hayworth, provided the setting for Ferndean Manor, to which uh, Rochester retreats after the fire. Oh, my goodness. But there, there are many other uh, contexts and everything. But just, I guess, summarize everything. Charlotte did not lead a an easy life. I think that there were moments of, of beauty and happiness, but there are also moments of tragedy. And I think a lot of the great fiction that we read comes from people who are writing from true events. And so I think we, we get a lot of that in Jane in particular.
I did want to briefly, before I give the synopsis, talk about some of the adaptations. Now, there are so many of them, I will say. And I have not, even though it'd probably be like a great desire or a great goal of mine to see all of them, <laughs> I have not. I've seen, I feel like I've seen a good amount. But there are a couple that I, I definitely, the ones that I've seen, I would definitely recommend to you. So in 1943... Uh, Orson Welles was Mr. Rochester and Joan Fontaine was Jane and what's wonderful is if you love Meet Me in St. Louis which I absolutely do Margaret O'Brien was Adele and a young Elizabeth Taylor was Helen Burns so I do really recommend that and the big thing about this 1943 adaptation is that finally we have a Mr. Rochester who's He's not ugly, but he's not attractive. Uh, because Orson Welles, you know, kind of this big, broly guy, and, and I think the first thing you think of is is, is probably his size, maybe, um, or his talents, his extreme talents, but not his looks. Because that's, you know, Rochester. Even Jane says, you know, you're not attractive. Then we have the uh, 1996 adaptation, which I can't say from personal experience whether it's good or not it's one that I do want to check out but I don't like Charlotte I, I'm, I don't care for Charlotte Gainsbourg who plays Jane so I'm a little trepidatious about it but William Hurt plays Mr. Rochester and Elle McPherson <laughs> plays Blanche Ingram so you know take that whether you decide to uh, believe in that adaptation or not or her as Blanche Ingram and then the most recent one was in 2011, which actually I just watched moments ago. It stars uh, Mia Wasikowska as Jane Eyre and Fassbender as Rochester. And I think here in particular, you really get the actual youthful appearance of Jane because a lot of times they're casting these older uh, actresses to play Jane. And my final two were both BBC series productions. Uh, one of them I own actually it was 1983 and I would f I feel like it's one of the most closely adapted film production of the novel and but it stars Timothy Dalton as Mr. Rochester and Timothy Dalton is a rather attractive man so while you have sort of his dark appearance a little too attractive for <laughs> for Rochester and Zayla Clark who played Jane seems a little bit too old so when you're hearing her as 19 and you're like looking at this woman it's a little crazy and then the final one that I saw that I have some like moral issues with just because there's sort of like this sensual scene I'm like that's that's uh Jane would not allow that uh, it was in 2006 and it, Mr. Rochester was Toby Stevens still somewhat attractive though I, I guess they were able to sort of tone it down with his appearance if you recall he was Toby Stevens was the bad guy on Die Another Day and then Ruth Wilson was uh, Jane. So just some, but there there are tons, and there are some strange adaptations too. So uh, definitely check out one of those. I think I would recommend uh, the most recent one if you want one that is pretty accessible. And it takes a it's a different look because the the narration starts actually when she's with uh, Sinjin and Diana and Mary, and then sort of goes back as she's like telling the story and everything. 
So, okay. Uh, so those are my recommendations there. So now I'm going to give the plot synopsis of this particular novel. I haven't really let Tom speak for like 20 minutes, but that's because I love this novel so much that I'm probably, for the first time ever, people, I'm probably going to be talking way more than Tom. So you should note this in your diaries. Okay, plot synopsis. Jane Eyre <laughs> is a young orphan being raised by Mrs. Reed, her cruel, wealthy aunt. A servant named Bessie provides Jane with some of the few kindnesses she receives, telling her stories and singing songs to her. One day, as punishment for fighting with her bullying cousin John Reed, Jane's aunt imprisons Jane in the Red Room, spelled R-O-O-M instead of R-U-M, which I think is how they pronounce they spell it in The Shining. Isn't it that R-U-M? Yeah. Red Room? Yeah, that's what I thought. The room in which Jane's uncle Reed died. While locked in, Jane, believing that she sees her uncle's ghost, screams and faints. She wakes to find herself in the care of Bessie and the kindly apothecary, Mr. Lloyd, who suggests Mrs. Reed that Jane be sent away to school. To Jane's delight, Mrs. Reed concurs. Once at the Lowood School, Jane finds that her life is far from idyllic. The school's headmaster is Mr. Brocklehurst, a cruel, hypocritical, and abusive man. Brocklehurst preaches a doctrine of poverty and privation to his students while using the school's funds to provide a wealthy and opulent lifestyle for his own family. At Lowood, Jane befriends a young girl named Helen Burns, oh Helen, whose strong martyr-like attitude toward the school's miseries is both helpful and displeasing to Jane. A massive typhus epidemic sweeps Lowood, and Helen dies of consumption. The epidemic also results in the departure of Mr. Brocklehurst by attracting attention to the insalubrious conditions at Lowood. After a group of more sympathetic gentlemen take Brocklehurst's place, Jane's life improves dramatically. She spends eight more years at Lowood, six as a student, and two as a teacher. After teaching for two years, Jane yearns for new experiences. She accepts a governess position at a manor called Thornfield where she teaches a lively French girl named Adele. The distinguished housekeeper, Mrs. Fairfax, presides over the estate. Jane's employer at Thornfield is a dark, impassioned man named Rochester, with whom Jane finds herself falling secretly in love. She saves Rochester from a fire one night, which he claims was started by a drunken servant named Grace Poole. But because Grace Poole continues to work at Thornfield, Jane concludes that she has not been told the entire story. Jane sinks into despondency when Rochester brings a beautiful but vicious woman named Blanche Ingram. Jane expects Rochester to propose to Blanche, but Rochester instead proposed Jane, who accepts almost disbelievingly. The wedding day arrives, and as Jane... and people this is a synopsis because i could go into the drama and the lying and the weird acting that rochester does and like leads jane astray but i don't have time for that the wedding day arrives and as jane and mr rochester prepare to exchange her vows the voice of mr mason cries out that rochester already has a wife in reality, it was um, his lawyer, but Mr. Mason does arrive. Mason introduces him as the brother of that wife, a woman named Bertha. Mr. Mason testifies that Bertha, whom Rochester married when he was a young man in Jamaica, Jamaica, is still alive. Rochester does not deny Mason's claims, but he explains that Bertha has gone mad. He takes the wedding party back to Thornfield, where they witness the insane Bertha Mason scurrying around on all fours and growling like an animal. Rochester keeps Bertha hidden on the third story of Thornfield and pays Grace Poole to keep his wife under control, and pays her well, by the way. Bertha was a real cause of the mysterious fire earlier in the story. Knowing that it is impossible for her to be with Rochester, Jane flees Thornfield. But, I should also insert, he does try to get her to stay and be his mistress. So, 
There's lots of going on there. Penniless and hungry. Oh, very, very bad part of the novel here. Penniless and hungry, Jane is forced to sleep outdoors and beg for food. At last, three siblings who live in a manner alternatively called Marsh End and Morehouse take her in. Their names are Mary, Diana, and St. John Rivers. And Jane quickly becomes friends with them. Sinjin is a clergyman, and he finds Jane a job teaching at a charity school in Morton. He surprises her one day by declaring that her uncle, John Eyre, has died and left her a large fortune, 20,000 pounds. When Jane asks how he received this news, he shocks her further by declaring that her uncle was also his uncle. Hee <laughs> hee. Jane and the Riverses are cousins. Jane immediately decides to share her inheritance equally with her three newfound relatives. Sinjin later decides, well, I guess he's always been co contemplating this. He decides to travel to India as a missionary, and he urges Jane to accompany him as his wife. Jane agrees to go to India, but refuses to marry her cousin because she does not love him. Sinjin pressures her to reconsider, and she nearly gives in. However, she realizes that she cannot abandon forever the man she truly loves when one night she hears Rochester's voice calling her name over the moors. Jane immediately hurries back to Thornfield and finds that it has been burned to the ground by Bertha Mason, who lost her life in the fire. Rochester saved the serf but lost his eyesight and one of his hands. Jane travels on to Rochester's new residence, Ferndine, where he lives with two servants named John and Mary. At Ferndale, Rochester and Jane rebuild their relationship and soon marry. At the end of her story, Jane writes that she has been married for ten blissful years and that she and Rochester enjoy perfect equality in their life together. She says that after two years of blindness, Rochester regained sight in one eye and was able to behold their first son at his birth. Oh, what a synopsis. Okay, well, the first question, I've almost been dreading it. And I will say, listeners, readers, as Charlotte or Jane says, reader, I married him. I uh, accidentally tricked Tom. I didn't really mean to. But when I was recommending this, I thought, I think it's only about three or 400 pages. That's what, in my mind, I was thinking that. And then when I pulled it out and I was looking, I was like, hmm, yeah, that's about 600. So I'm very sorry <laughs> for recommending a longer book than I intention. I, I intended uh but we made it we made it so tom what did you think about this book did you enjoy it i finished the book so well reader that means no so i can tell that i have my work cut out for me for the next hour hour and a half well i do want some i'm, I'm going to try to eke some positive comments out of you tom so i for, i'm gonna be i'm gonna be fair okay 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 i'm gonna be fair I know what it's like sure. to be the guy who like kind of kills a sacred cow of you know material pop culture and then it just comes back where people are like, you know, hey, you didn't like that, remember? So I'm like I so I'm not going to go down that road. I I I've gone back over it a few times. I've not reread the book, but I've, you know, I've I've um, you know, I've gone over the question, you know, I've gone over our discussion questions of the summary. I I went and talked to my friend Cliff. I think that I can be objectively fair, okay. but I'm not going to sit here and crap all over the novel, even though I didn't really like it very much. But I will say that part of the reason was that I f there were huge chunks of the novel that I honestly don't remember. Like oh. I it was very like there were there were parts that I really liked 
Like the beginning of the novel, I really enjoyed. Not that I enjoyed children being abused, but I thought that was a really good way to start off the novel. It, sure. And I could see where J.K. Rowling got. Didn't that? Didn't they basically do that with Harry Potter? Yeah, well, he was like, trapped underneath the thing. I've but never, yeah. yeah, I've never read the books. And I've Dudley, seen bits yeah. of it, but I know kind of from the the Mando used to joke that she hated at the beginning of the every Harry Potter novel because it's all about how his family treats him so awfully. Um, but I, I liked how that started out because at least it was um, intriguing to me. And and the the typhus epidemic yeah. and Ellen Burns and that like that whole section intrigued me. Bits and the, the whole like the time at um, Thornfield was the part where it just to me it slowed down and died in places. And I thought the the wedding was a really interesting thing. The whole thing with like the fire and Grace Pool and Bertha was interesting. And then after that, where she left and she was you know uh, kind of wandering about and, and kind of being Cosette Fantine about it. That was interesting. There were bits and pieces of interesting, but there were like huge chunks of the novel where like I can't tell you what I read because I just was like I couldn't follow. And so so that that's where I'm coming from. And so I'm going to be I'm going to try to be as fair as I possibly can because it's not to me like it's um it's not to me a novel that I like absolutely just didn't like like hated from this era. That her okay. sister wrote. Oh, sure. I, yeah, I'm sorry. Nice. I can't stand that novel. <laughs> like, like people like go, Heathcliff's the Byronic hero. Heathcliff is an abusive jerk. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, why I mean, do we yeah. hold this guy up? He's a he's he's an abuser. Yeah. So it's not it's not it's not like you know I hated this book. You know, this is crap. It's it's just I. I, I did not like it, but I, there are parts that I, that were interesting. So I'm going to do my best to be fair about my assessment to answer as well as I can, especially in some of the places where I couldn't really follow what was going on. Okay. I uh, Well, I guess I'll be carrying the positivity for the both of us, but at least you, you pulled out some positive things there. Frankly, I didn't know that we didn't we were allowed to not read a whole book. So next time... I did read the whole book. <laughs> I, know. I just don't remember. But, but as if you had an option of, you know, stopping my, it my for the show. My eyes, like, glazed over at certain points, oh, and I was goodness. just like, what the heck is going on here? Okay. Well, here's an easy question to start off, and it's in regards to all the places that she's been. And Charlotte divides the novel into two parts, and the division occurs after she returns to her initial living place with Mrs. Reed and and Mrs. Reed unfortunately dies. Like that's basically where it ends. The first part. Yes. And then the last half is or I suppose the part two is is everything after that. Gateshead, I couldn't think of what it was called. Do you think two parts do you think that was a good division or would you have divided it up between all of the sort of the five places that define Jane's life? Hmm. Uh, you know, it might have it might have not felt as long if she had divided it up. Even like, I mean, she if she had just kind of chunked it out a little bit more like that. Although, what's interesting is I have the, like I said, I have the Penguin Classics edition. Mine says it has three volumes. Oh, interesting. So, and here, let me, because um, it, it literally is divided into volume one, volume two, volume three. Um, she arrives at Thornfield at the end of part one. They divide volume two up. 
And volume three is right after the wedding. Like she hasn't left Thornfeld Thornfield yet. So it goes like so my book goes chapter one through fifteen is volume one and chapter sixteen through twenty six is chapter two and then the rest of the book is volume three. So I don't know if, if your edition breaks it up differently. Either way, it could have been five books. Okay. You know, yeah. like each location change is its own little book or story, and perhaps that would have chunked it out better in terms yeah. of like a, a tighter. I mean, like which is like a, a you have this long narrative, so chunking it up into smaller pieces might have made it a little bit um, more compact in those little places, and it's a little bit gives you a little bit of a respite, especially from some of the longer parts of the novel. I think it would have been interesting to have more divisions. I, I'm not necessarily needing a respite, but I knew that there was a division coming, and I was I was thinking that I was a little curious where it was placed, because I think Thornfield, you know, having the childhood in Lowood I think would be a good part, and then, you know, having Thornfield and everything, and then potentially another one after she leaves Thornfield, Thornfield to the end. But, yeah, I, I don't know what went into that. I wonder what charlotte originally did i guess i'd have to do research on that given the fact that mine has two and yours has three and who knows what other editions had it'd be interesting to do research of what uh, charlotte had originally how she had originally divided it yeah was it serialized Hmm. it doesn't seem like it was it seems like it was they were all yeah once because they were all published at the same time janair withering heights and agnes gray and it seems like they were just published as a whole yeah. Separately, but as a whole. Okay. Uh, what do you think Jane learns from each of those five places that she's lived? She starts out with Gateshead with her, as as you said, her abusive family. Lowood, another abusive place, but certainly with bright spots of hope there and, and people that she grows attached to. We have Thornfield, which is really... <laughs> where she spends the bulk of her time, I would say, and then Morehouse and Marsh End with the Rivers family, and then Fern Dean. If you were to split up, you know, look at each of these, what do you think she, how do you think she grew in each of those places, and, and what do you think she came away with after leaving each of those places? Lowood, I would say, is where she gained a lot of her strength because of what happened there, where you have, that's the that's the school, right? Yes. Okay. Because of all the things that happened there between her and Helen Burns and, and some of the other girls basically being shamed repeatedly for, you know, stepping out of line, Brocklehurst being this sort of martinet, you know, like of of discipline and everything, and then to find out that he was skimming off the top, right. basically. So he's corrupt. And so she she learns both academically, you know, because she becomes she gets educated, but then she learns a lot of character in terms of resilience, which she already had. But it's a sort of resilience. There's a difference between being tough because you've had a a bad upbringing in that way that she did. That she, you know, so she learned to be tough in some way at at Gateshead. But the the education she got at Lowood perhaps added to that in a way that she there was a there's a sophistication that was added to her or or a, the manners and the proper things of society so it became tough it became resilience instead of toughness which i think is two different which is variations on the same thing but resilience is a little bit um stronger 
in terms of like you know your your ability to withstand things. I'm not exactly sure what she learned at Thornfield aside from the fact that men are pigs. Because seriously, like, what a jerk. <laughs> and then um, at, at the at the other place she lives, I'd say uh, at Morehouse, it, it it seems like she's learning the same thing over and over. Um, there's a fair amount of guilt, though, that she seems to carry with her or, or something because she she certainly whines a lot and beats herself up about stuff all the time, at least it seemed to me. In, at Just in general. So I don't know if she feels guilty for the way that, that things have gone or what. But then again, like I said, there were when, – when I got you know when I got through the, the Thornfield section, like I said, I was trying to figure out like what she you – know, I, was, I was going back and trying to figure out what she had learned. And there's a lot of – there's betrayal essentially that happens there. Whereas you know, her, her family at um, Gateshead is horrible to her. But at least they don't lie to her. Well, they do lie to her, but they lie to her about the the uncle and all that. But at least they like they're not they're they're not um they're not duplicitous in their cruelty all the time. Like they are outwardly cruel to her. She knows they're outwardly cruel to her. And here's somebody at, at Thornfield. She learns that like how deceitful people are. In fact, is it she, while she's still at Thornfield or, or later on after Thornfield where she learns that how her aunt had lied to her uncle about well she no she learns that when she returns back to Gateshead. okay 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 but like she learns she learns how how badly even more how badly deceitful people can be she saw about Brocker about the school but the school like it affected everybody not just her sure. and then at the end it's like at the end of her time at Thornfield it's like you know here's this this huge deception that I was that 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 I was playing on you Repeatedly, by the way, he deceives her more than once. Yeah, he's a, well, he's such a jerk. <laughs> I can only defend him so much. I, you know, I think he is—he's certainly a romantic figure that people I know have crushes on, and maybe some of them wish to find a Rochester of their own. But oh, you know, we'll, we'll, he does. We'll get to that. Uh-huh, he does at least explain that he's doing that to because you know he's trying to make her feel jealous. Because she doesn't outwardly show her feelings or emotions, so I think he's like puzzled as to how she feels. And you have to also at well, it's, least it's, it's Victorian England. It's a bunch of repressed white people sitting sure. around. Sure, and you at, at least have to be sympathetic towards him because he he's damaged. He's very damaged, and I think he doesn't want to put himself in the situation that he was with Bertha again potentially. Um, so I think he's being cautious, but he's also being idiotic in his cautiousness. So I, I do see where you're coming from. I would like to see some evidence of what you're saying about her being whiny and taking some guilt because I guess I, I disagree with you. I could go along with you depending on if you had evidence, <laughs> but I'm not sure if you do at the moment. But I feel and, – and I do understand. I think I can see where you're getting the whininess, though I don't consider it whiny because there are times that she'll – sort of look at Blanche and Rochester and be heartsick, right? Because her feelings are not reciprocated. But I don't think she's ever like out, you know, just that kind of thing. And or if maybe you're thinking about when she's with the Rivers family and she is thinking back, but she's pushing forward. She's pushing forward. She she um, her head might be in the past a little bit, but I think she's trying to make do with as much as possible. But that that's, you know, 
show me your evidence, sir, and then I'll, I'll talk to you about that. But that's I'm saving it for letter O in our discussion. When we get there, I'm going to let it all out, let me tell you. I feel like she learned a lot of feelings or emotions at these, dif- at, at these different places for Gateshead. I feel like she learned anger and hatred, not necessarily her own. Well, it could be her own, but certainly people putting that on her as well and just not being loved. At Lowood, I feel like she learned shame, what true shame is when she's made to, uh, basically she's called out in front of everybody. She's called a liar, even though this is not true about her. And Brocklehurst says, you know, do not associate with this person, shun her company. But she also, I think, finds true, genuine love, uh, not only from Helen Burns, but also from Miss Temple there. With Thornfield, I think, and I would agree with you that I think Lowood, she had her greatest, I mean, she was there the longest for the, you know, Mm -hmm. eight years. So I do think we saw the greatest amount of change and growth in Jane when she was at Lowood. And once she leaves, I feel like we have the particular character that we're going to have for the rest of the novel. I think that's why I felt like the time at Thornfield, like I just glazed over because Lowood is the longest time of the novel chronologically. Right. And she changes the most and that's the most intriguing stuff. But by the time she gets to Thornfield, it's this romance with somebody who I don't think is worth the time. Mm. And she doesn't change like as much. I mean, there's, you know, she kind of strikes out on her own as at, at, she strikes out on her own at the end. And then after that, it becomes interesting again to me because she's because of the struggle. And now I have this problem to overcome, but when she's at Thornfield, it's just kind of stalling, and that's that's where I that's where I had an issue with the with a lot of the pacing of the book. Well, it's day to day of a governess. You expect her life to be super exciting. No, but Bronte could have <laughs> trimmed about fifty pages off this novel. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the day to day of a governess is every is, is interesting if you're studying history, but you got to come up with an intriguing enough plot, like you know, trim the fat. Yeah. Well, I think she's certainly. She finds herself in a completely new position because she is well-regarded and well-respected in that house. You know, Mrs. Mm-hmm. Fairfax greets her. She says, finally, someone I can talk to because <laughs> yeah. the servants can't offer much in that sort Yeah, this of is way. Rebecca. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Because no, yeah, like, I can see where DeMaurier got Re- the whole Rebecca thing yeah. with the new the new woman and the old caretaker. But right. she flipped it on its head because the yeah. old caretaker – and I can't remember the woman's name right now – hated her yeah so i see where she got that so this isn't rebecca (laughs) no no it is not and she's got a young ward and i think this harkens back to in lowood you know that is exactly what she was doing and then i think she finds someone who puzzles her is a mystery to her to a certain extent they're equals in different ways just having uh i think tragic backstories and they're able to i love their conversations because on some sides of them they're super bizarre (laughs) with like the things that he goes into I mean the first time that he has a conversation he's talking about your people of the woods and the fairies and all those things and she goes along with it like to be able to do that I think they have a really good repartee Uh, then when you get to Morehouse and Marsh End I think she learns a lot about self-denial which we'll get into when I ask my Christianity question and uh, trying to push forward I think it was probably 
the most depressing part of it all because she's clearly trying to move forward, but her heart is still with, you know, Rochester, which you can clearly tell when she's trying to get information from Sinjin about, you know, from Briggs about, you know, where is Rochester and what's become of him. But she also finds a family for once and a family that loves her, Sinjin in his own way, but certainly Diana and Mary and theirs. And then Fern Dean, I guess sort of hope and, and a happy ending is, is what she gets out of that one. I guess. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I do want to talk about, this is funny because I'm in like school after hours and it's a little scary. But, but I want to talk about the paranormal ex- paranormal experiences. Gothic dramas or gothic romances are one of my favorite genres. I, I have one more revenge book left <laughs> on my plate for Tom and it's in that genre so you can tell. But I, I love sort of this weird spooky element but oftentimes it turns out to be just a regular sort of thing and it's often just really built up in the narrator's mind of oh what is going on but it's completely I'll say normal even though having someone trapped in an attic isn't normal but at least it's a person not a ghost but mm, how sure. do um, how do the paranormal experiences modify your understanding of the characters and how do you feel the supernatural elements interact with the novel's realism so two bigger questions to, to wrap around, talk about. Which part of the supernatural elements are not an expression of their repressed sexuality? A tree splitting in two when they kiss? Oh my gosh. And then the whole thing of him calling off the, at the moors? <laughs> and uh, my powers were, it was um, the whole thing with the, um, uh, where was it? It was this whole, the whole thing with him calling out of the moors. Yeah. And... Where there is no energy to command well enough, obedience never fails. I mounted to my chamber, locked myself in, fell on my knees and prayed in my way, a different way to Sinjin's, but effective in its own fashion. I seemed to penetrate very, very near a mighty spirit, and my soul rushed out in gratitude at his feet. If this is not a euphemism. That her soul is rushing out? Uh, I'll keep this PG, but um, it's it's... It's this whole time of of this repression of of any carnal or, or or desire. So you have to. I mean, isn't that like half of what Dracula is? Is just this 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 expression, this way of like Whoa. showing these things and and this this repression of this like sort of of what of what the society was repressing, and then this is a way of getting it out. I mean, uh, through through the literature. I mean, that's how I I read into those two scenes there with the woman in the attic. I guess that symbolizes his you – know, it's too obvious to say it symbolizes his deceit. I, I'm not – it, it, it's, it's a huge reveal, and, and it was an intriguing mystery as to like what, what was going on. Although I knew, I, I knew the whole woman in the attic thing before going into the um, uh, novel because I was also aware and familiar with the existence of the novel Wide Sargasso Sea. Which is a which is written in the 1960s, I believe, and is essentially a prequel to this, told from the point of view of Bertha. Uh, so I, I, I had I, I remember because my wife's read Jane Eyre, she, you know, and she's read the other book, and and uh, we were talking about it like briefly before I started reading this. But yeah, so I just I see the the I can't I can't tell you like where the what the what the whole woman in the attic thing is aside from like all of of uh, Rochester's wrongdoings everything coming back to haunt him 
at the time where he thinks that he's going to get away with everything. But but there's, there's some of those moments, like the calling out of the Morse, it's like clearly it's sex, at least to me. <laughs> at least to you. Well, um, I, well, I don't know about the Sinjin one because I don't see Jane as having any sort of romantic or carnal desires towards Sinjin. But it so wasn't that, was that after stress. But uh, wasn't that? But wasn't what I read? Wasn't that right? It wasn't that was in response to hearing Rochester's voice on the moors. Like she sends she, he, she like the page before it, it's like you know he's like what did you see? She's talking to Saint Sinjin. Like you want to say Saint John, but it's Sinjin. She's like, um, uh, the hills beyond Marsh Glen sends the answer faintly back. Where are you? I listened. Like, this is that scene with him calling out to her, supposedly, and her hearing it. And then she sends him away. And, and it's, I mean, that's that's how I read the scene anyway. Like I said, I'm probably wrong, but. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. It's just, a, that's a strong interpretation. <laughs> and I, I don't like it because... One of the reasons why I respect Jane so much and, and appreciate her as a as a female character is that she denies all of this stuff. And she, like, even though he is what she really wants in the world, and he's, you know, suggesting let's just be together no matter in what way, like, she runs away from that. So I guess I would have a hard time seeing that she's able to do that. But I, in everything else, she's, she's showing the opposite. There's nobody around her. So it's it, and to what not feel yeah. shame? Well, there was no one around Rochester. And well, it's Jane. true. So they didn't have to feel shame when they did. Um, well, a, a kiss, but like you know, again, yeah. the 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 well timed lightning. Yeah, I don't. I guess I see their relationship. I mean, clearly, you know, they have a son and everything. But well, I that's feel like later she, on, though. Yeah, I know. But I, I well, I wanted to say that I don't know if I necessarily see it as like she's lusting after him. I think her love is is so much deeper than that. But that's that's just me. But you know, with with the paranormal and supernatural, I love how it's not just Bertha. I love how it starts from the very beginning. I think that Charlotte does a wonderful job of really threading it throughout the narrative, so that it's not jarring when you just have this one ghost element. And jarring isn't really the right word, but I think it would work if it were just Bertha. But I think it makes it all the more powerful and perhaps believable that something fishy is going on because you have the red room, which starts it all off. Because Jane is freaked out about this. This is where her uncle, John Reed, had died. She sees that light, and then she sees something else and passes out. You have dreams that come into play, which I think in... I kind of want to go into this, because sometimes part of this I sort of see as like an epic for Jane, because she's like Homer. No, she's not Homer. She's like Odysseus traveling around, and then she finally comes back to Penelope, except Penelope's Rochester here. But, you know, dreams are really important, I think, in classical literature. And mm -hmm. if you recall, Bessie had dreams, or a dream in, in particular, about a baby. And if ever you have, like, a dream about a baby, according to Bessie, anything, something weird or tragic would happen. And then Jane has a dream about a baby. She has several, actually. I think the first one was then when she found out about her aunt. And then she continually has this dream about the baby, which is like leading up to the wedding. I think uh, the tree, I can 
kind of go with you. For me, the, the shattering of this tree where they kissed is very foreboding. I mean, that was like where they're ready for their union to happen and this tree that has been there forever is now destroyed and so I felt like it was foreshadowing like clearly this union is not going to work out um, something bad's going to, to happen so you're all you're about the sex and I'm about the <laughs> I'm not about that I'm think. just saying it's it's saying yeah. that the time in which this is written is an incredibly repressive society and those things have their way of finding finding their way out. And a lot of times it's through this sort of of s- symbolism, mm-hmm. and you know, it's just it's that's where that's where that's where I'm getting that from. I see. Would you have liked the novel more if? Well, maybe I won't do that. Do you think the novel would have changed significantly if the supernatural elements had been taken out, with the exception of Bertha? I don't think you. I don't think you can take Bertha out of this novel. I think. I don't. You see, there are some where, where if you had changed a couple of the scenes, like you know, okay, let's talk about that more. That more the scene with her hearing him. Had he not said later, "I was calling to you," right? Which, for all you know, he's like lying to her. But um, let's like say he's because he says later, "I was calling to you and you heard me." Had he not said that, you could have still had the scene in there and it would have been the same impact. Like in that way, she thinks she's like maybe hallucinating it or something like that. Like like all the little things that happen are – they're coincidental in a sense. So there's nothing like – they're supernatural in the sense that they're like realistically supernatural. Like a things like a bump in the night type of thing where like you can't explain it away or like your mind is making up but there's no actual like – demon or ghost or something actually causing these things like the like is she essentially so freaked out about the red room that she she thinks she hears something and she's hallucinating that mm-hmm. like and could you like explain that away like that and if that even if that's the case it's still terrifying because yeah. like your mind your mind plays tricks on you so if you're getting into the psychology of it and having a lot of these like weird crazy things um happen that are like maybe it's in my head a little bit it still works as it's still a little bit intriguing thrilling if you took out the tree being shattered i think the scene wouldn't have changed too much especially since um they kiss and miss fairfax sees it i believe and she's kind of cold to her right and because she didn't know that like they had he had just like proposed so she's under the impression that it's like illicit you know they're sneaking around rolling the hay type of illicit. Um, but she's not like, it's all on the up and up. And then the wedding happens and everything. And I guess, I guess the tree provides foreboding. It is like something out of like a bad cheesy, spooky movie, you know, like yeah. well-timed lightning in, in like, you know, in a Vincent price movie or something. A Vincent price so, movie. so yeah. I could, I think you could take that out. The other thing, though, I think you, you should leave in because they're psychologically, they're, this psychologically, they're effective. Hmm. Yeah. I no think matter whether it, or not yeah. they're supernatural. Yeah. I I like that they're in there. I think it would it would really change uh the novel for me. Obviously the big one is Bertha, but just I think having them run throughout the novel is great and, and creates this weird sort of spooky atmosphere and uh yeah, I like it. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I just think it, it, it makes it all the more special for me. I want to talk about something we've not delved in. Maybe we have delved into it, but Christianity. 
And this is, oh, it's a big, religion is a big thing in this particular, I don't want to say theme, but it certainly, it is running throughout. It's like a motif? Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. Beginning to end. So what do you think, because I think Jane has her own perception of Christianity, and then as she meets other people, as she grows up, it starts to sort of morph and change. So what do you think she has learned from Helen, specifically these people, Helen, Brocklehurst, and Sinjin? My notes for this were, like, really small, and I wrote, Helen equals, like, selfless virtue or sacrifice. Okay. Um, Brocklehurst equals greed and hypocrisy uh, and Sinjin equals uh, pride. So two of them equal like if we're talking like classic Catholic seven deadly sins, even though I, she wouldn't have been Catholic, she would have been probably what Anglican or whatever, Episcopalian or whatever whatever the whatever it is. But um, two of them are essentially deadly sins, but then you have a you have a virtue. So she learns kind of like both sides and perhaps how trying to separate like Christianity in terms of its spiritual sense and religion as a practice because the former there's a essentially like a like a as as I, I weirdly ironic as the statement may be a platonic ideal of what this spiritual concept or religion should be and then there's the people who practice it or who and very often can warp it in a way or another. And you see that with like people like Brocklehurst and, and I think Sinjin as well, that they, that they give into too many, like, like Brocklehurst is, is preaching this. This is, I guess he's trying to thinks he's preaching a doctrine of Christianity, but he's basically corrupt. And Sinjin is, um, way too arrogant to be, you know, again, like a way revered man of God. So, but then again, you have Helen Burns who essentially, I don't know if she's a Christ figure. I don't know if, if if that's the road this novel goes down, but she does. She's a good person and she dies and her death makes, and and you know, the other, the rest of the outbreak and everything results in things changing for the better at the school. So perhaps she is a Christ figure. I don't know. I would say that, There are, sadly, this is, I think, a reason why many people don't like Christians, unfortunately. And I'm saying that as a Christian. But sometimes people, they skew, I think, or they have this idea of what, how the Bible should be interpreted. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's way harsher than it should be like they preach more out of condemning than loving oh yeah and so this is certainly (laughs) this is which is something i get we talked about this last episode (laughs) oh i guess we with march i guess we did yeah Yeah. but it's just hard because you know i see lowwood and it like makes my skin brocklehurst in particular makes Mm -hmm. my skin crawl just because of honestly how hateful he is and he's preaching as if he is sort of the ultimate authority and you know Jane's or anyone is this terrible person we're gonna beat the sin out of you and (laughs) and then you're right absolutely about you know the hypocrisy and everything uh, of that but just more condemning more condemning than loving and that's what the whole school is about with the exception of Miss Temple and Helen of course and in this read-through 
what I got was Jane in the beginning before, you know, and before I guess she meets Helen or a little bit during is very Old Testament, meaning very eye for an eye. You know, if someone does something, they should be struck down potentially. Like vengeful. And, uh, yeah. So more harsher, rigorous with, with the rules, wrath of God style. Helen you have, as you mentioned, you know, very similar to a, a, a Christ-like figure. She very much is New Testament. And New Testament, of course, you have Christ coming into play. And he is preaching the gospel of love and sort of the, the new law that has come into play. And, and saying, you know, to forgive others and also to turn the other cheek, which she constantly does. Because she is the one who is always at the forefront of being beaten. Her, you know, quote-unquote sins. I think she's slatternly. Slatternly? Is that the uh, slatternly? I yeah. I think so. You know, being a little yeah, she's um, like, she's she's me- a- messy. Yeah, she's, she's, she's a she's a martyr basically absolutely yeah and yeah. not and not in the pejorative sense like an yeah. actual martyr but you know jane in their conversations jane's really upset for helen and she's even saying you know i would beat them up so there's that you know wrath of god right there and, and eye for an eye and helen's like no you just accept you need to love love those people um so i think through that and and through that wonderful experience with helen helen's one of my favorite characters um besides jane Eyre, i I think jane begins to learn more compassion for others uh with sinjin a lot of it i i get your arrogance and i don't care for him like he whenever i get to that part i'm just like you are (laughs) so annoying sir but he um i think is also very much preaching like self-denial and like death to self and like everything uh really needs to be uh devoted to god and to the extreme almost which you know to a certain extent you do really need to sort of give up all these earthly things and really be devoted to uh, this is coming from me as a christian devoted to christ but he he is to the extreme and can't even accept you know jane is offering herself as a missionary but no you have to go in this way and not allowing himself any happiness with uh being with rosamond which is super sad and tragic and just thinking that this is the pathway for me, I need to be the best that I can be. So I can see where you're getting that, that arrogance and everything. But I think she also learns sort of her his idea of love and hers are very, very different. You know, I think that speech where he says, enough of love will follow. And she's like, enough of, I spurn your idea of love. Because clearly he's on he's not on the right path. But it's it's interesting to uh, to see her growth, I think, in terms of her religion and to see how the different people impact her or also the very skewed and almost perverted forms of Christianity that pop through the novel as well. Uh, I want to talk about the narrator, which I've been joking along and, and saying reader all the time, but we do have her peeking through at times and, and addressing us in particular, but mm-hmm. also because the narrator is older and looking back at all of these events we see her poke through in particular moments or I guess throughout in the childhood uh, vignettes as well as other times. Do you think that she intrudes on the narrative? Do you think that it works out that she's able to – can you even tell? I, I think you can. I think, I think you're right. Well, like You can tell where she's intruding, but um, it gives it some perspective that's probably needed. You know what this reminded me of? Um, Harper Lee does this in To Kill a Mockingbird where it's – the the voice that Scout uses in telling the story is not 
little kid scout it's scout as an adult remembering that time in her life um and in there i think it's great and it's it's not intrusive at all in fact it does give a little bit of a just a perspective and and not and not too much like you know um and i think i think it works here too like i don't think she intrudes too much on her own narrative where she's not you know navel gazing type of you know like she's she's trying to offer some perspective like you know of the of the uh on on what is happening so um yeah. the few times where all, yeah it's all pertinent yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's not it, that's right it, it's not superfluous at all yeah because i think in particular like the typhus epidemic mm-hmm. i think you could really see like the adult jane coming through because i think young jane didn't necessarily know exactly what was happening exactly and then why people are going back but then older jane could yeah. like set up what was going on where the other where some students were going about the deaths and things like that yeah. so she's able to in hindsight look back and add more details that makes it mm-hmm. fuller yeah it doesn't come off and and it doesn't come off as self-indulgent on bronte's part where I'm so enamored of this voice that I have that I'm going to put it all throughout. You know, like there are there are writers who do that, and it's like really pretentious, and um, especially like especially younger writers. No, nothing against youth, but like you know, um, so <laughs> no, no, you know what you understand what I mean. Like you I know, do you, know, you, you can know. tell at a certain age. So I, I think I think you're right. It's it's not self indulgent, and it's definitely definitely pertinent to the to the narrative whenever she does it. Another thing that she does. And I guess it's really Jane in real time, but she often will personify different things like reason or nature or conscience. Sometimes she will directly address them. Sometimes they will be capitalized and she'll just be calling out to them. What do you think the impact of personifying these ideas, I guess, is the best descriptive word for all of those? Do you think uh, that adds to anything, these these personifications? I... Honestly, didn't get it. I didn't. Okay. No, I, I I wrote down. I honestly didn't follow that. I couldn't. I I went back through it. I went to Cliff. I went to some site like Victorian Net or whatever, which was like way too over like effusive about the Brontes to the point where I had to like walk away because I was just like, it was almost like worship. I was like, yeah, I, I guess like I tried looking it up. I, I saw something about how passion there's passion and conscience and how they're kind of against each other and nature's glorified because that is one of the traits of the romantic period like you see it in a lot of the poetry of the time yeah uh, so the romanticism has an emphasis on emotion and individualism but it's in it's in it's in conflict um with what would come later throughout the victorian period of this sort of restraint and repression but there i had to like again but i will well, no because the victorian era is restraint <laughs> i know and and oh, so um but i had to like work to find them there's a lot of use of apostrophe, you know, calling out something that um, cannot not respond present, right? um, or is not present. Uh, but honestly, like I – that's about as far as I got to figuring out because I missed it in my reading. Okay. Yeah, I just – I was flipping through and I saw Sinjin uh, use Fortune. He personified Fortune. I thought maybe I'd find other ones. But, oh, did she just say – no. Yeah, I just feel like it. they seem to come at really emotional moments when she's calling out or she's struggling with her, you know, conscience and, and asking for help. And you go with romanticism, and I almost think back to, again, classical period, and just the idea that a lot of these would have, 
you know, a connection to potentially a god or goddess, you know, reason, fortune would be, you know, fortuna personified and, and what, what does that mean? What's the impact of sort of calling out to something? So something that's not just an idea, but perhaps has like a bodily form and that could help her. So I thought that was, um, I thought it was interesting. I'm not sure what, how that jives with sort of the belief system of, of the age. Mm, yeah. Like, so you're, uh, you're, you're talking about cla- classical literature and yeah. I was thinking of Athena as wisdom Sure. Yeah, that's what yeah, I mean. yeah. Following that classical uh, rather than like we're reading the classics. I mean, like yeah, no, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, when you were talking about that, that's what it reminded me of. And it's yeah, not just because I'm yeah. teaching the Odyssey in a few weeks. So yeah. Oh, that'll be exciting. Okay. Hopefully well, they actually that's... read it. Oh boy. Uh, well, I hope you're not doing the whole. Thing. No, just what's in the textbook. Oh, oh, okay. So there are some chapters it, you could skip over because they're like lists. Of oh, yeah, lists. yeah, yeah. And I love the whole thing. I love the whole text of the Odyssey. But the what's cool about the text when you have it? It hits the high. It hits the highlights. Cool. Very cool. Uh, well, you're teaching what? Sophomores? Freshman. 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 Okay. I'm Eighth teaching. Yeah, as of as of this recording, uh, in a few weeks, I'll be teaching um, general level freshman the Odyssey, and next week. I'm doing another epic with my AP seniors, Beowulf. Yay! And that that I'm only hitting the highlights on because I want to move on to 1984. But um, you know, yeah. But um, and yeah. God, Beowulf. I just I was rereading that and I'm like, God, that's so metal. It's just, oh, I'm like, oh, I wanted gosh. to play some Zeppelin and like, you know, <laughs> go watch Thor again. You know, oh, so boy. yeah, just like, Ugh! so anyway. Wow. Okay. <laughs> How would you say foreigners are represented in this novel? Do you think something's being said? Because the, the foreigners that are mentioned, I believe, are colonies of the British. Oh, Empire. yes. Let's get into this, please. Let's do it. Foreigners I I called you are beneath everyone in this novel. There okay. is – Bertha is the only person of color in the book, I believe. Because I believe Bessie is just a, is a servant. She's not like – well, shouldn't Mason? Yeah, um, so Bertha and Messi, Bertha and Messi, Mason. Mason. Yeah, <laughs> you made a ship. She's name. locked up. She's depicted as a rabid, unstable animal. Jane has a nice bit of anti-Semitism in the book, by the way. Uh, now, King, this is on page two ninety-four of my book in chapter twenty-four. Um, what do you, what do I want with half your estate? Do you think I am a Jew usurer uh, seeking a good investment in land? Yay, systemic anti-Semitism. Um, and then Sinjin takes on the white man's burden at the end of the novel. Because he's going to go and educate all the savages. To India. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And lose his Oh, yeah. The, there's an entire portion of this world that Western Europe, like, they're still recovering from this. <gasps> There are like the entire continent of Africa is still recovering from what the what the Western Europe did to it for centuries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And India was quote the crown jewel of the British Empire as they called it, and they you know there were uh, there's still you know there are still remnants of that. I mean, if I haven't personally had the chance to watch the Ken Burns uh, Vietnam documentary oh, it's sitting yeah. on my dvr i just i have to i have to find the time but you look at that and like we were talking about vietnam very briefly the last last episode um and i and i cover the vietnam war in a comic but like that goes back to the french 
you know, in the, in the 19th century. And then you have, um, like just all over Asia and Africa and, and South America to an extent, although by this time, South America had, um, for the most part, won its freedom from, you know, the various uh, the Spanish, the Portuguese, et cetera. Yeah. It's, and, and she's, she's basically expressing what was this sort of, um, the xenophobic and racist view of anything, anyone foreign, even the French, because she basically teaches the French out of Adele. And then Adele comes back later years and goes, hello. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's me. It's me. Rochester, yeah. Maybe maybe that's what Rochester was saying. Maybe she's standing at the window and all of a sudden it's... That's comedy gold. No, it's 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 like the whole view of foreigners in this in this book is like totally totally awful. So you know they're they're all beneath her. Like you know you literally have somebody acting like a rabid animal, and she happens to be the only person of color in the entire novel. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I have nothing to add there. I I never. It's not a positive thing for sure. So why oh. why does he? Why does he stay married to her? Like, I don't know that he can do anything about it. Like, they keep the marriage a secret. Like, I, I, okay, so he went over to um, he went over to the West Indies, and the marriage was arranged, right, to right. Bertha, and her father had money, so it's not like she's somebody he picked up. Like, so she came from, I believe Bertha's father had money, so they come back, and she's mentally ill. Or I think as they call it, they call her insane. I don't know if they use that. What vocabulary? She, they she's use. mentally ill, and and they lock her up. Why? I understand why he married her in the first place because he had no choice. That's what an arranged marriage is. But why go through the deceit of pretending it never happened? And locking her up in the attic. Like, what's the motivation? I'm honestly asking you because I didn't get what the motivation was aside from the fact that there's this huge reveal, which works out really cool in the plot. But I don't know. Right, yeah. When we talked about the backstory, I don't know. I don't get why he did it. In the well, first I place. feel like it's, it's certainly shame. I don't know if he had the option to do it. It seemed like he was very much arm twisted in all areas by his brother and his father. And so I think he would not have been allowed to divorce his wife if that were an option i don't even know what the guidelines are back then but i i just don't think he was allowed and then he just kind of wanted to start over and what best way to to do that and i mean he even goes through this 
thought process of I could have locked her up in an insane asylum, but even he felt like he was not he was not cruel enough to do that. So he thought he would just it would be his burden to bear and so she would just be there for as long as he was there. But yeah. Then, so he's not willing to get rid of her, but he's he's <laughs> he's certainly not proud yeah. of her. Yeah. And then later on Saint John is like his burden to bear or is these foreign savages he has to make right in a sense savages savages yeah. barely even human yeah um <laughs> it's just this yeah, yeah i know um <laughs> just so people don't think i'm making it, but it's song. just like this it's just you can see the imperialism within this sure, and and yeah. yes that does make it of its time but i don't want to use that phrase because and say that justifies it because then you are justifying a then by there by extension you are justifying a lot of awful things about this particular century in world history. And you mentioned Adele, and I think even even the the mother and that whole story and backstory with Rochester, you mm-hmm. can clearly see, you know just living this life of I guess luxury and being with multiple men, and then I, Adele puts on that little show, and Jane is like, clearly she got it, you know, got this from her mother, because I think it was about a lover or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there's some, some negativity there. Did you enjoy this, though? Because often it's fun for me when I'm reading a novel and there's Latin in there, but this was French, and not all of it was translated. Did you, were you were you able to follow along? And I was... Go- I was able to kind of pick, follow along like around the edges from what I remembered from, from French class yeah. years and years ago. Yes. Cause I didn't go for a translation. I did my best to just kind of understand what was being said. And, and I, I think it did a fairly good job, but yeah, that was, it was kind of, it was kind of fun to figure that out because, and I did appreciate the fact that she didn't have another character there to explain it. You know, like yeah. she'll put another. Like we read comic books, and then if it's in a foreign language, very often the the word balloon will be, and like there'll be parentheses around the whatever's being said sometimes, or there'll be an asterisk with an editor's notes translated from the French, you know, or whatever. Or here comes Jen, and Jen's gonna explain. Oh my goodness! To Rick, what Adele is saying. Why? Because the audience needs to know, and, and Bronte didn't do that. So I give her credit for that because that, and, and it did kind of make it fun. Like, hmm, I wonder what she is saying. So I, I got bits and pieces of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a musical I really love called The Light in the Piazza, which is based off of the movie. And there is a part where the Italian family is like all singing, like operetta style. And then the mother comes out and she says, you know, she basically is like breaking character and saying that she's going to explain what's going on. But obviously, I don't speak English. But you wouldn't know what's possibly going on without me, which is true. But that's really funny. It usually gets a lot of laughs when she comes out and breaks character. Aiuto me means help me in Italian. I don't speak English, but I have to tell you what's going on. But I see what you're saying. But yeah. it works in that moment because you kind of it's big plot yeah. points and you kind of need to. There know. was a production of West Side Story. Um, this goes back maybe. The Jets f- in the show. Yeah, this goes back like maybe five, ten years, where all the Puerto Rican characters did their lines in Spanish. And I remember reading about it in the post, but I never went and saw it. West Side Story is one of the few musicals that I actually like. Oh. Which is ironic because I can't stand Romeo and Juliet. But um, 
but uh, but West Side Story is one of the few that I I genuinely like, and um, I remember reading about it and actually wanting to see it, which is rare for me because I've only seen four musicals in my entire life. But I did not get a chance. It was at the Kennedy Center, but for some reason, I don't think we were, were able to get tickets. But that would have been interesting to see, like West Side Story with the Puerto Rican dialogue in Spanish. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Let's talk about, you've been touching upon them, you've already been comparing them. Let's talk about our two main masculine, attractive slash unattractive characters, Rochester and Sinjin. What do you, how would you compare and contrast? Do you see any similarities between them? What do you think their strengths and weaknesses are? And as a little, little candle, a little cherry on top, why do you think Jane ultimately chooses Rochester at the end? I don't, lots of things. I don't know why she chooses Rochester at the end. Right, would so you choose Rochester? No. Would you choose Cindy? No. Where would you go? I take the Kelly Taylor route and I choose me. <laughs> I don't choose Brandon. Okay. I don't choose Dylan. I choose okay. me. I see. Um, I don't. Are you sure that's how 90210 ended? No, that's how one season of 90210 ended. Uh, 902 ended it with the, with the wedding of David and Donna and Dylan and Kelly got together, but Brandon was off the show by then. Oh, okay. I missed Brenda the entire time. Anyway. Shannon Doherty. They want she wants Rochester to be like the romantic hero of the book, but he he does like it's not gaslighting. Oh my god! Because it's not, but but he oh, does like so word. many things to her that like any sure of herself woman would be like, no, I'm going. And here's the other thing: she leaves. She does leave eventually. It takes like. It takes the breakup of the wedding for her to finally leave. But, like, she leaves in a way that's, like, for somebody as intelligent as Jane Eyre is, because I've gotten that impression up until that point, you know, she's been – she's resourceful. She's resilient. She's certainly intelligent. She's – because I guess the one of the functions of a governor, governess is essentially to be a teacher, right? Yes. Yeah, so she just leaves without thinking about what she's – how she's going to survive. <laughs> like she just kind of goes and which is just kind of like you're running away like just like that like you're smarter than this you know like strategize a little bit but yeah I don't I don't see why she chooses him and then I see Sinjin as like a cycle of servitude starting over again in a way like like he's so strict like you were describing him as like this strict way of interpreting Things and he's not as villainous as Brocklehurst is, mm-hmm. but is am I wrong in seeing some similarity in their characters in in a way like that in the in the way that like you know that she would be essentially under him in that way and having to live by whatever strict strictness. Yeah. In fact, she gets liberated by virtue of an inheritance. Sure, because yeah. after she gets the money, she is not beholden to him. She's beholden to him because he helped save her life when she showed up at their doorstep. And correct me if my facts are wrong on the whole of what I'm describing here. So, like, he is definitely not necessarily abusive, but he's that sort of cycle starting all over again of a man controlling her. And I in, agree. In, in that sort of way. And it's, I think, in particular because 
of the end. It's it's very painful. I think he's very cruel mm-hmm. where he's cold to her. He's reading revelations and was like watching her or like it's clearly with her in mind and she's asking for forgiveness and he apparently has there's nothing to forgive, but you know, his whole attitude has changed because she said that she wouldn't go with him as his wife. I love how like the trope of the preacher who's like a bad guy is like he reads revelations. Nothing ever, yeah, like nothing ever good comes of that in anything aside from like, you know, if the actual end of the world is happening and the preacher's reading revelations for clues into something or something like that, like, you know, or like it's something in the omen, but like, yeah, it's just like, I'm going to read revelation. Oh, like he's a bad guy, isn't he? Like, you know, (laughs) it never turns out to be like, oh, he's actually a good guy. I see them. They're brusque, I think, in their own way. I think Rochester is more outwardly brusque <laughs> because he just like snaps at Jane and you know he's supposed to be that ironic right yeah uh, yeah i mean he's not, he's not a pleasant guy no he's not, I, I think when you think of someone who is dashing and everything you would think of sinjin so their outward appearances are completely at opposite but i think their inward is um, a little bit different, you know, because Rochester has been hurt so much in the past, and I think what he truly desires is to be with someone that he loves and that loves him back and, and that failed initially with Bertha. And here Sinjin has the opportunity to do that, and he scorns that, and he's only, like, willing to give a little bit of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, they're, they're, they're opposites in a way, but they do complement each other. Like, they're two sides of a, of a coin. And you sort of ask yourself, like, which one would Jane be better matched with? But I feel like she is more truly herself because she's so reserved, I think, when she's with Sinjin. But she's able to play along with and voice her feelings quite openly and those feelings and opinions be accepted by Rochester. I mean, she he asks her in their first conversation because he notices that she's staring at him. Do you think me attractive or handsome? And she says, no, like <laughs> she is clearly, you know, mm-hmm. and it's funny at the end when uh, she says, like, you're 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 still as hideous as ever. But, you know, she could never say that to Sinjin. So I think she's. She um, cannot be her her true self there. So for me, I just feel like uh, she's more compatible with Rochester, even though I do understand where people believe that he was probably emotionally abusing. Well, her. and and with with Sinjin, and like I said, it, it was a recall back to Brocklehurst, and maybe like you know people earlier, where perhaps like in the back of her mind, and like you know in in, in her memory, when he starts treating her the way he does. It's almost like an involuntary response where she falls back into the habit of how does an abused person act? Like she snaps to, in a sense, like, you know, like, okay, I'm going to, you know, and, and, and like almost like even if she's not aware that she's doing it, like all of her defense mechanisms kick in and maybe she's acting a certain way so that she does not get treated the way she did in the past. You know, that's why I was equating it to like those earlier times because he is very, very, he's mean, he's very, very mean to her, but he is not locking her up and you know like he you know, sure. he's treating her like an adult but yeah. he is but he is definitely not you know he, he is definitely i you know i'm your superior or whatever and and it's an emotional beast that's on a different level than like what is what rochester is essentially doing to her because rochester is manipulating her that yeah. entire time that they're together and she sees it but then but then it's like at the end she gets together with him anyway 
And I don't get how she's equal to him at the end because I don't see her as being equal. Well, I don't think she is. I think I think she's – while she desires equality, I think from our reader's view, clearly she is above him. She's but she takes a role subservient to him. Well, that – yeah, but that's Jane though. But she's but she's I, like – so it's basically – I think she has a servant's heart. But, but she's like – I've heard this talk talked about like in, in feminist circles and I'm like – or just in terms of feminism, or like, but she's taking up the role of like subservient caretaker now, as opposed to a beneath you wife. Like now, she's basically his mother at the end. And I'm like, I don't see how that is. How that she's she goes back to society's conventions. I don't see how that's liberation in any way. And um, and he has to in order to be sort of quote, equal to her, he basically has to lose everything. So he goes down to her level, which how is that liberating? It's, I don't, so that so I don't see that reading of of equality or any sort of independence on her part because I see like all these things that have to happen to him in order for them to kind of be on a similar level, and it's like that doesn't make sense to me. That's somebody well, coming she, down to yeah. your level. That's not you going up. Well, I, I mean, she doesn't have to be a paid – she's not in a paid position anymore. Yeah, but she's still <laughs> – oh, great. So now she's, she, she's she's not being paid to take care of him now. She's well, just doing – she's not being paid to take care of Adele. I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, she – well, Adele, she left – yeah, she's taking her leave of Adele essentially. It's from one world to another, traditional world to another. So, but I, I don't understand why she picked why, why. I mean, like you know, yeah, you you always have lingering feelings about your ex, you know, especially that close. How how long was she gone from? At, what's the time span between? Was it a couple of years? Yeah, or at least a, at least a yeah. year. Yeah. Um. So it, it well, makes think- it makes sense to have still have feelings for him. I I sure. don't I don't think that's unrealistic. But to me, well, that's it's her first love. Yeah, but but. So you're getting together with your ex who treated you terribly. Well, at least not at the end. He well, there there were some good moments in there. Once it was all cleared up, because he never said that he was going to marry Blanche Ingram. He just led her to. He was manipulating her. (laughs) Don't you think he's humbled though by the end because he he's blind, he's lost his his arm, and so his character has changed. And he's more docile. I guess. I mean, the, you know, but at the same time, like. And he's not asking her to take care of him. Like, he even bristles at the notion. But again, you know, the servant's heart. And, I mean, that's a big thing of Christianity there. You've got her basically, as Jesus washes disciples' feet, you know, she is washing. Well, you know, th- there's my metaphor there. But it, it but shows. She's taking care but of it him. shows, like, but that's such a. There's a lot of men who respond to things that way, and it's like shows this such a lack of empathy in people like that. Where like, oh, it wasn't until it happened to me that I realized that like things like this were horrible. I could go around saying poor, it's poor people are poor because it's their own their own fault. But all of a sudden, I'm poor, and it's like, oh, I really didn't realize like how this was horrible. And it's like you know, oh, so now that it's happened to you, you understand. So it's just kind of like. You mean, are I'm you kind of about open. His yeah, like or his his whole thing of losing everything because he does lose everything, and it's an obvious consequence. Copyright Alan and Emily Middleton of everything that he's done. You know, that's his that's his comeuppance because Bertha's the one who burns down the house, and then she you know takes a swan dive off the roof. 
And um, in the same way that um, at the end of Rebecca, the house burns, be, and it's and that is the comeuppance for you know sure. that's truly the, at the end of Rebecca. It's the the the, the um, what was the name of the house? It's, it's like the, like Weathersfield or shoot Mansfield or Michael Vayner. I don't know. Um, uh, the house, the mansion burns, and and that's obviously like you know it's it's scrubbing her from the essentially scrubbing her from the earth and scrubbing her from everything. But, um, but it's, it's also a consequence of everything that had happened prior to that. Like it was, you know, and to have it, to have it set on fire. And that's, I get the same feeling here, which you, like you said, Demoria kind of obviously got her inspiration in some way from, from Bronte's from, especially from Charlotte. And so, yeah, it makes sense. Like you can't have you can't have like the only consequence of his marriage to Bertha be like the romance with Jane is over because nobody knew about Bertha except for like one person, two people, if you count Mason, you know, it was like Grace Poole and that was it right outside of. Well, then the town learns about it. Oh, yeah. So like he's ruined, you know, like but you can't have that like, you know, that people forgot about it. No, he was able to carry on. It's like, you know, oh, he moped around. Congratulations, you got dumped. But then she, like, you know, this is the consequence for what you did to this woman, not Jane, but Bertha. Like, chickens coming home to roost, and that's what happens. So, but now he sees everything in a different light. It's just like, it's kind of contrived. And I still don't understand why she would come back together after, back with him after he did all that to her. Aside from the fact that a, that, that a novel of this era demands a happy ending like that. Because she loves him. I don't know why he can't accept it. Why do you think we're moving on? Because we could apparently argue about this for hours. Why do you think there's a, a, it's not a critical moment in the novel, but there's a point in the novel right before the wedding that Rochester just wants to heap gifts upon Jane. And Jane is uncomfortable about this. And why do you think he does this? I think that his impression of what a wife should be is that she should be a kept woman and and that that means lavishing gifts because on her because essentially that's what you do to a woman who is your wife because your wife in that time is beneath you. This actually it actually made me think of um a doll's house by Henrik Ibsen. Which is uh, you always mention that's because I taught it for like eight years in a row. Um, okay. <laughs> which is uh, same century, but like decades later, a different country. But at the same time, like uh, Nora is always like you know at the end she's like you know I was your little doll, I was Papa's little doll child, and then I became your doll wife. And so the idea that that she is a she is who you give pretty things to and you dress up. I mean, I mean, look at some of the patriarchal conventions that come out in our modern society that surround marriage that traditionally you buy, if you want to in this sort of tradition and even in our, in our advertising and our media representation of everything with engagement, granted it's all marketing. So you're, cause they want you to spend your money, but you know, the man is buying a pretty, pretty diamond for the woman. And that, I think that goes back to Victorian times. Um, but this idea that you, that you, you, you essentially buy her off or you keep her happy, you keep her kept by um, buying her, but she's not used to that. Like you said, she's not used to, she, it, it makes her feel uncomfortable because 
Jane doesn't come from that stock in a sense. Like Blanche, that's the name of the woman that he almost that he was going to marry, right? She yeah. does. But Jane isn't her. Like Jane is Jane did not have the childhood of of a woman who was a girl was a pretty pretty princess and lavish with gifts up until daddy gave her away to the man who was going to be make her the princess and lavish her with gifts. So he's just following the rules. But she the does rules it, the rules of society at his level of class. And she's not of that level socially. So she doesn't get it. I see. That was my Why, interpretation. Yeah. I see. Well, it's just obviously she's uncomfortable. And it's annoying because he did not like that Blanche was just in it for the money. And he tested her and said that he had less of a fortune than he did. And so then Blanche, like, turned away, basically. Mm-hmm. So she was only in it for the money. But then here, she's, she's, like, she's trying gold. to yeah, – a gold digger? Yeah, I ain't saying she's a gold digger. <laughs> I haven't heard that song in a while. <laughs> uh, now I ain't saying she a gold digger. But she ain't messing with no broke, broke. But Jane, you know, she doesn't want that, and so all of this stuff is is coming after her. I have concern that he he thinks of her as a possession, and I'd have to go, I guess, more into sort of the epithets, I guess, that he calls her to see if you know how he refers to her. I know he calls her Janet, but just in other yeah. ways, I don't know. Oh, so if that was just like a pet name for her. Yeah, I couldn't understand yeah, why he yeah. was calling her Janet. Janet, yeah. Damn it, Janet. But I just wonder if there are other 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 things that he's calling her that makes it seem like um, she's a possession of him. But, you know, we also, I think, we've not taken into consideration in all of these discussions that he is quite a deal older than her. I mean, she's 19. Yeah, and he's what? He's maybe in his 40s. Mm-hmm. It's it's supposed to be so, yeah, it's supposed to be kind of yeah. May-December, right? I mean, yeah. So he's he's has <laughs> he's lived a life, and it's not been the best life. So I, I think some of his experience, some of their experiences, are not aligning, and that's what um, maybe some of those some of these issues that you and I are having uh, might be related to that. Why do you think we? Or sorry, not we. Why should Charlotte, or why does Charlotte, end the novel with the prayer of Sinjin Rivers? The prayer being, do you want me to read this in case readers don't know? Reader, let me Go read ahead, this. go ahead. My master, he says, has forewarned me. Daily he announces more distinctly. Surely I come quickly, and hourly I more eagerly respond. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. There is a note. The footnote is applies to the sentence, his own... His own words are a pledge of this. And it says, Rivers quotes uh, Revelation 22, verse 20, the penultimate verse in the Bible, presumably in his last letter to Jane. She takes him to be expressing a joyful faith in the glorious afterlife awaiting him. The exclamation, surely I come quickly, is reminiscent of Jane's response to the clairvoyant message from Rochester. I am coming. Wait for me. Oh, I will come. So that's the footnote. And I looked up the footnote because I was curious. So um, what do you – do you think that's a, that's a interpretation, that it's a callback to the to um, what Rochester calling out to her? But he's calling out to like God kind of like in – you know. I, I can go with the interpretation. I just wonder why we're ending the whole novel if it's called Jane Eyre with St. Jane Rivers. 
Yeah, I don't know. I I know that like there are well, it does it does call into question like why do we need to know what happens to him? And and is it just a, con- a convention of, of the era? There's a I'm trying to remember what novel it was. It's an eighteen hundred. I think it's Crime and Punishment has a last chapter that is very much like this, where like you know there's sort of a everybody ends up you end up knowing you end up how you know how everybody ends up and people get together again and if you had lopped off that chapter the rest it, it actually would have made the book better because like the book ends the book would have ended on like a more interesting note or anything and it's almost like you know he had Dostoevsky almost like had to put that in there this is me remembering what we discussed in college 20 years ago when I read it so I'm wondering if like that's just kind of like the trope of the time that like we find out what happened to everybody when honestly after Sinjin leaves I don't see his purpose in the novel like he's done like he leaves that's it he's done he doesn't need to come back you know like he's fulfilled his purpose. You don't right. need to know. I don't need to know what happened to him. This I'm not like I'm not a slave to continuity. I don't even think even if I really really enjoy this novel, it's not that important to me know what happened to him because the focus then is on Jane and Rochester. So, right. so yeah, maybe it's just a convention of the time. Well, it is so abrupt her leaving Morehouse and Marsha End, mm-hmm. and she does mention Mary and Diana. Would you if you excised? Sinjin, would you have to excise Mary and Diana's little ending as well? Does she stay in contact with them and she's like still family with them and friends with them and stuff? Correct. Yeah, they come and visit yeah, her. So, so she, if you mention that offhand, it's not that big of a deal, but she never sees Sinjin again, right? Like he he goes off and does his thing and it's not like they right, have her right, right. So like, Yeah, that's so it. You yeah. could mention offhand that she is still friends with them. Like she brought that family into her family and it's we're one big happy family at the end. So they're not, you know, their purpose is done in the novel, but including them in a glance is not, doesn't take you out of things Like you know, it just, but this, I, I don't, I don't get why, why we have to end with, why we end with him when, when the epilogue is, um, yeah. when the epilogue is so much a focus on um, her, and aside from it's just like, dear reader, I think you should know all these things. So I'm just going to tell yeah. you, you know, um, kind of like a movie like Fast Times at Ridgemont High or American Graffiti or Animal House where they like show stills or they, they like have a little bit of a scene of the actor. And then there's like a pause and it's like, you know, Jeff Spicoli uh, saved Brooke Shields from drowning and then blew all the reward, reward money getting Van Halen to play his birthday party. You know, and like, you know, in Animal House, it's like, you know, this is what happened to Niedermeyer. Like, it's like one of those endings. Like, you know, we don't need to know what happens to these characters 10 years down the road. But like, hey, this is what happened because it's kind of a funny little joke at the end. So, like I said, I think it's just a trope. I see. I, I'm i not sure either. I, I wish it would have just ended with Reader, I Married Him and then sort of the happy ending and everything. I can only say that you can see... It's almost a what if, you know, for fans of of those sort of stories or Elseworlds for for our little comic plug of the the episode (laughs) where you could have seen what what would have happened. You know, what Jane's fate would have been had she gone with Sinjin. And the fact that really Sinjin, I mean, I I think he did find his marriage. It was just his marriage to, to Jesus Christ. And, and, you know, that's what he was longing for all along anyways, though perhaps the way he presented it was not in the, like, the best intentions or, like, it, it wasn't presented the best way. But, you know, he ended up 
becoming a martyr or um, dying for for what he believed in there. So, but yeah, I you know having it more uplifting and having the baby in Rochester and Jane would have been what I preferred. Okay, I want to talk about the marriages here and passion in particular, which I guess we'll get into because you're all about the sex in this episode. So, Rochester's we could say disastrous marriage to Bertha was partially based on passion, partially partially based on riches. And Sinjin refuses to marry Rosamond because of his passion for her, which seems a little backward. Do you think Bronte is saying anything about the role of passion in a marriage? Yeah, uh, I'm trying to figure. Uh, it's it's lust, it's sin, it's it's bad, it's you know um, his. I mean, granted, his uh, perhaps she's criticizing the convention of arranged marriage for money. Yeah, like. Or not even arranged, but like there's even up until that point, a lot of there's a certain amount of economic transaction that takes place in a marriage between people of higher class. You know, like you marry into a family and the marriage, you know, and that's that was the arranged marriage. So perhaps she's criticizing that as well by having the marriage to Bertha be just that disastrous. I wonder if Bertha had been white, would they have essentially given her some sort of disease and had her die and there's a sadness in him instead of you know this huge secret or something Mm -hmm. like i seriously think there's like just this inherent racism in having she's she's a person of color and she's insane she's rabid and it's just like had that character been what they probably wouldn't have done that um but uh yeah so i think on on the with the disastrous marriage to bertha it is perhaps a criticism of the very old that point economic view of marriage you know that you are exchanging houses as opposed to falling in love and getting married which is taking it back to shakespeare and romeo and juliet you know their forbidden love was the fact that the two houses were warring with one another and so their love was forbidden and they got married you know marriage for well that was passion because they're two teenagers who were, you know, hormones. I'm very surprised at you what? right now. Because we This is the second time you brought up Romeo. And well, Romeo. I'm trying to because because I'm trying to keep it references to kind of centered around classic literature in that mm-hmm. sense, and maybe it's on my mind because I teach in grade. But but with with the passion, it's like perhaps she is, perhaps she is she is trying to find the ideal mean between the two extremes in terms of the definition of marriage that on the one hand you have arrangement and economic and these two people couldn't even love each other and he will take mistresses because that did happen but on the other end of it you have passion and lust and 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 an over like a overcarnal thing that that no 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 that's dirty so in the middle, we have to have something more pure and out of love, which is kind of a a vague emotion to have, but it's certainly not it's certainly not that sort of a size of side of passion. Mm. So it's 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 that sort of Aristotelian mean, you know. I see. I I'll go a little bit um, less highbrow than you just went, and I would say that passion cannot make up a marriage alone. Mm-hmm. And that there has to be something to, to level it out. Because I think there is passion between Rochester and Jane, but I think there's also some other qualities about it. And 
well, I don't know yeah. about Sinjin, what it would have been for that. But, yeah, it just a marriage cannot be a, – a successful marriage cannot just be based on passion. It has to have a – Yeah, and I think you're right because – there, there's, I mean, there's couples I've known in, in real life, and there's couples on in in like shows and and things where it's a very passionate thing, but the flip side is a negative passion, fighting, mm-hmm. arguing, like almost a destructive oh, sort sure. of passion, like like in big, yeah, 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 like I mean, you know, which which was an abusive, <laughs> which was an abusive relationship, but then it there's was, also the, yep. but there's also the passion of like the the you know the uh, yeah a destructive sort of of passion that is that is the flip side to that so it's almost like passion plus reason perhaps <gasps> personified i don't know reason personified but it would it, you, you mentioned reason before so if you're adding passion to reason is that what bronte is saying like needs to be elements of a marriage so i mean it, it would make sense in the context because she is she is i believe they kind of go out of their way to describe that she's play, she's plain jane right sure. she's not in fact, I think you mentioned that in some of the adaptations, they don't they don't cast the actress. They don't always cast the actress as somebody who's who looks unattractive. Not just she's unattractive, but like they, you know, it's tonight on the CW. Jane Eyre is not gonna yeah, be cast yeah. very well, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? She's not. That's mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. her. Um, no. So she would have to be. No, that's stupid because pretty women are intelligent. But she is – she's portrayed as somebody who like you know is is more of a person of, of, of mind and personality and, and, and rather than just superficial body. Yep, and I think just a calming influence on uh, Rochester because so. something made him stay and that, that first time he came back. Mm-hmm. Do you think that she's equally impacted by the men and the women in her life, or do you think more so by the men? I wonder if later in the story she thinks she's above most of the women. Mm. Like, I would say I, at I least her cousins. Yeah, I don't think she's mean, and I don't think she's like Marie Antoinette about it. You know? Oh dear. Like, oh, 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 right. But she certainly is slightly patronizing toward them you know and definitely i think in the narration you get a little bit of a condescending error toward them but maybe that's because of her experiences i don't think she's treated well by the men in the story at all but i think she's if, if you're balancing out the men versus the women i think women in general treat her better than men do with the which a couple of it with the possible exception of mrs her her aunt Ms. reed yeah. who like i love how you said unfortunately she dies it's like the woman was deceitful, abusive, and she had a stroke. She got what she deserved. Oh my gosh! She Thank did. you, Old Testament, Tom. She did she gets what she deserves? Up until her death, she never apologizes for the fact that she was just this this resentful hag. She did say to her that she had twice done her wrong. Okay, she admitted it. That's but as then close she, as you're gonna get. So she still gets what she deserves. Oh my gosh! So <laughs> you're Jane and I'm Helen, basically in this scenario. I I guess I I can uh, agree with you. I think it seems like she's impacted by many of the the characters in the in the novel, mm-hmm. which I think she's a very dynamic character. But you know, especially with Helen and Miss Temple, I think we see the the greatest change in her. So I think perhaps the the women are the 
the the catalyst for the the biggest change in in Jane's life. They're definitely positive. They're definitely more positive yeah. influences on her in the form of women than there are in the form of men. Yeah. Her final liberation does come from a man in that she inherits money yeah, from so. from the man who would have freed her to begin with. Because wasn't he going to take her away as a child? Well, he freed her three times if you think about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, he was going to take her away as a child. Then he's the one who revealed about the marriage to Mason. Mm-hmm. And that which that you know snowballed, and then yeah. he he gave her the inheritance, which yeah, and all she wanted was she didn't even want the money, she just wanted a yeah. family, which is there. another trope of some novels of this time, like the secret benefactor. I think Great Expectations is is very similar to this, you know, the idea that there's there's somebody in secret. We eventually find out who it is, but there's somebody who's like you know a fairy godmother type, you know, the secret benefactor, somebody who's gonna help lift you up. Lift me up so. I will disagree with you about her being condescending and and seemingly above. I think in our perception of reading it that she clearly is a little bit better now than Reed and Georgiana and can't remember the other cousin's name. But she's not acting out. I think it seems so different because in the previous time that we saw them together, she was angry and, you know, a little hostile because people were giving her things that she didn't deserve and so she wanted to give them back. But here she's calmer and they might be looking down on her but she is she's helping them out if you remember george oh no i wasn't like i I was talking about her her, i thought the people the the women at the end i don't even know if they actually are yeah like like it's subtle but i always get the feeling that she is just a little bit more above them but not in a way that's snotty she is uh, i don't i want your evidence for that um because she like dotes on diana she loves her. I mean, she like lays at her feet. See, that's, she but that's the thing. Loves like I said, learning German. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's like I said, I'm probably wrong because, like I said, <laughs> there's a lot of I this. I just want your evidence. Well, because I don't really have any. I just, I kind of got that feeling. But then again, like okay. I said, I there was a lot of this novel that I just didn't get. So that's why I'm. That's why I'm trying to like get in where I did understand what was going on. And then try to like and, – and if I'm wrong, and I, obviously I'm wrong here where – and I want to say I'm wrong because like I said, you know, I know what it's like to try to trample on, a, on something that somebody really likes and then have it come back to haunt you later on. So so yeah, so I'm totally wrong here. I, when, when she finds out that um, John is the name of the cousin, right? The one who, yep. the one who kills himself. Oh, John. John Reed. Reed. Yes. Like yeah. I got the feeling that she felt – she did genuinely feel sad for him because she is she by then was not the vengeful like you're talking about how she's a dynamic character and that does show like had jane been 12 you know like it had been a a year or two into into lowood and she heard about that she would have had the exact same response that i just had about her aunt that she would have probably said, oh, he got what it was coming to him. Good. But now years down the line where she's certainly changed, especially because of, you know, what she saw what happened to Helen and everything. Yeah. And she's so far. removed. Yeah. 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 So, so, but, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so I retract what I said about, about how she thinks she's above, uh, how she's above, but I do think that her, the women treat her better in this novel than the men do. Mm, yeah. 
just two more questions. One of them is a huge one that I want to save for last. But I also want to talk about, before that, the paintings that Jane does. We find out that Jane's not very skilled in many things. Uh, she's plain looking, so she's not like, you know, a, a, as Tom described, I think even Sinjin says, like, she's she's a little plain about the face. Um, <laughs> which was kind of mean because that was the first meeting, and clearly she didn't look too good because she was out in the moors in the rain. But one thing that she's really good at is art. And there are a couple times that the narration goes into detail about what she is drawing. I believe it's twice. Once when Rochester is looking at it and once I think when she's working on a piece or pieces at Morehouse. And so I wondered if you thought that these were I hope you didn't blank on these. I wondered if you thought that these were important passages and what they might possibly reveal about Jane. I did blank on these. I have nothing. Oh my heavens. I wonder if I could find a passage. I tried doing some research on this. Yeah. Like I said, I found a site called Victorian Web or something. They were like really overly enamored with the novel. Like me, I should go on there. Wait, Victorian Web, isn't that what I got from my biography? Yeah, I found it through Google. Yeah, Victorian Web, that's what I got my biography from Charlotte. They they mentioned like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and how this has something to do with Blanche and Rochester and Summergrove, but I couldn't follow what they were getting because like when they started to explain stuff, then they went to this whole thing about how wonderful Charlotte Bronte is, and I'm like, can you get back to the analysis? Which which just coincidentally, I've been writing that comment on a few students' papers. Like when you're writing literary analysis, oh keep your personal opinion sure. about the book out of the analysis. Keep it formal and go to the analysis. Like I'm glad you like the novel. I'm glad you like the poem. It's not important to whether or not what the symbolism of this is or how, how, uh, you know, Poe uses tone or, or, or syntax, you know, like, or whatever you're trying to show. Um, and they were doing that all over the place. So I gave up, you know, cause I, I, I totally missed this. Okay. Well, I found one as you were talking. So thank you. Mine is in chapter eight. So no, that was terrible for a Latin teacher. Sorry. It, it chapter two, 13, I was about to say 18, but I was missing a V. 13, I'm on page 159, but I don't think we have the same edition. So this is when he is looking at her her watercolors. And so I'm just going to describe one, just mm -hmm. one. These pictures were in watercolors. The first represented clouds, low and livid, rolling over a swollen sea. All the distance was an eclipse. So too was the foreground, or rather the nearest billows, for there was no land. One gleam of light lifted into relief a half-submerged mast, on which sat a comorant, oh boy. <laughs> Sorry, that was me because of back roll. Dark and large, <laughs> with wings flecked with foam, its beak held a gold bracelet set with gems that I had touched with as brilliant tints as my palette could yield, and as glittering distinctness as my pencil could impart. Sinking below the bird and mast, a drowned corpse glanced through the green water. A fair arm was the only limb clearly visible, whence the bracelet had been washed or torn. 
So that's just an example. She goes on about uh, another picture. Oh, she has three pictures. I think she does this again later on. Uh, for me, I think it shows her, because there's this conversation about he asks, where did you get this image from, or where was your copy? And she says it was in my head, and he says something like, the very head that I see right now? And she says, yes! So see, there's a, one of those little cute back and forths. But I think it shows her imagination and her cleverness uh, as an outward form, because just looking at her, she really is plain Jane and, you know, just the governess. You know, people make fun of the governesses in this particular novel. And you don't really get to see her wit unless she's interacting with Rochester or potentially seeing these images. So I think you get a deeper idea of who Jane is. I think just like I just read that there was a corpse beneath, like she was just talking about the, like, using as much of her palate as she could for this bird. But then she talks about a corpse <laughs> beneath the sunken ship. So I think there's also with these beautiful images that she's creating, there's there's something dark and foreboding there. And I think this potentially is coming from her past. I mean, this could be reading into it or looking forward to like something, you know, dark is, is going to arrive. But there's always something that's sort of sinister lying beneath the surface, both in her images as well as in the novel. So I don't know if the, the paintings are almost an abstraction of the novel itself that you know this beautiful work but then there's also something sinister lying beneath the surface but that's as far as i've i, I got with that i don't know mm. if you have any other thoughts now that you no. heard something i will say that you go down to the third description uh, the third the third show the pinnacle of an iceberg piercing a polar winter sky which is like two paragraphs down from that because mm -hmm. i found i found the passage you're talking about and i'm uh, so glad my copy has a footnote. The, that paragraph ends with this pale crescent. It's something about a, a head up against an iceberg above the temples. It's like this colossal head, thin hands under an iceberg. Uh, above the temples, a mister red, red turban folds a black drapery. Vague in its character and consistency as a cloud gleamed a ring of white flame, gemmed with sparkles of a more lurid tinge. This pale crescent was, quote, the likeness likeness of a kingly crown. What a diademed diad, diad, diademed well, like diadem. So diadem, diadem, sorry. Yeah. Was the quote shape which shape had none, and according to the end notes in my copy, that is from Milton's description of death in Paradise Lost. Mm. So I don't know okay. I don't know what to get from that, but there is certainly something I don't want to say sinister. Because she is not a sinister character, perhaps foreboding is a good is is yeah. a good word. But yeah, like I said, I I, I missed I missed that. How dare you! Uh, my final question: It all comes down to this, and this is the reason why I love this book so much. Big question here: How does Jane Eyre rank, in your opinion, as a literary heroine? I was thinking about this today. Because I was trying to think of other literary heroines. And the problem is, and I was, I was specifically going through the list that I had come up with when we originally conceived the show, which was books that I read in junior high and high school. I want to say with the exception of like, maybe I'm missing a couple. Nora Helmer is an exception. Most of the literary characters that you read, if you're reading, if you spend most of high school reading classic literature, are male. Mm. Like, and I was, I was starting to think of like the great literary characters, like Scout. Um, Scout Finch is one of the rare exceptions. Like, you are always reading male protagonists. Has I can't it? stand the Scarlet Letter. The the lady in the, I've awakening. Never read the awakening. That's good. I thought you meant Hester. I thought you meant Hester Prynne. 
I did. I'm just yeah. giving you two. Um, the Awakening. No, I've never read The Awakening. Does Daisy count? Daisy. Daisy's an odd character to talk about because she's so in the context of Nick and Gatsby and, and, and all of them. But like, even then, like the focus of that novel is Gatsby and, 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 and Nick. And even if it's not like a, a male, a, it's not a, a novel about being a man. It's, there are so many characters. So I, I, I can't, because I don't think, I honestly don't think I've read enough literature aside from more modern day, young adult literature or more modern day literature where the protagonist is a woman and even then some modern day either just modern day books have women protagonists who are who who are kind of laughable that who kind of fit that bad romantic comedy sort of mold like the bridget jones type (laughs) you know and then like i said it was on the victorian website and they're going on and on about how so much of this is charlotte <laughs> oh it's charlotte oh, putting herself in charlotte putting herself in charlotte putting herself in and two words popped into my head but it's too snarky for me to say it but we all know the two Snarkier words is inappropriate well is she not a mary sue is she a mary sue Ma- is she mary the sue? original mary sue isn't a mary sue like the author putting themselves in and making themselves that character that represents them extraordinary and like I kept I kept coming back to that too, but I was like, oh, but that's just that's just being like mean. But I can't. But the thing is, I can't rank her anywhere because there aren't enough female. There aren't enough characters aside from like Viola from Twelfth Night, who I adore mm. as a character. I love her in. Uh, and she's the man. Yes. Um, and some that's of Shakespeare's nice. heroines I do really like. Okay. Rosalind and yeah. um, as you like it. And um, some of the characters in *The Midsummer Night's Dream* and stuff, but if you really think about it, just in the terms of curricula, who high school and into college, there are like no female heroes. There, there really aren't. There aren't that many. So I can't. I, I'm. I, I pass. You pass on. That. I can't. I can't. I can't answer yeah. that. And the other thing is, like I said, I didn't like the book, so I can't see why it's so important, especially. All these years later, when we have when, when you could have a much more modern perspective on things, a Mary Sue is an original character in fan fiction, eh. usually but not always female, who for one reason or another is deemed undesirable undesirable by fan critics. A character may be judged Mary Sue if she is competent in too many areas, is physically attractive, and or is viewed as admirable by other sympathetic characters. So I don't know if I would go. If that is the definition of Mary Sue, I don't know that I would say that Jane is Mary Sue. I yeah, but, can't say. But but we'll yeah. get off that point. I was I was just trying. Like I said, the snarkiness came into my head, but then I was like, no, let's let's not go oh, down okay. the road. So let's let's stick to the hero. <laughs> but, but like I said, I don't I don't sure. see why. Yeah. This is so why the why aside from what I was saying, snarkily, I don't see why this is why it's like she's held up. Aside from the fact that she's one of too few. Okay. I think, and this is coming from me, I'm the one who's putting her on a pedestal, uh, but I guess Victorian Webb is is agreeing with me. But, I mean, you do have the Wuthering Heights person. Catherine? Which one? Yeah. There's two of them. Oh, man. There aren't there, there's like two Catherines. Is it like the mother and the daughter and Heathcliff's a jerk to both? You might be right. (laughs) You might be right. I guess I think in terms of, 
you know, Jane Eyre with the past and, and it's contemporary. Oh, and you have, um, you've got Emma, (laughs) you've got Elizabeth Bennett. See, now they're coming out. You also have, uh, the main character in Vanity Fair. I cannot recall. Oh, Becky. Isn't it Becky? Becky something? I can't remember. I have not read that. So I can't. Yeah. It's on my list, but I have not. Yeah. I just saw the adaptation. Even, even the heroine in Rebecca. Yeah. Not, well, we talked about that. Could yeah, yeah. Consider her that. Um, Emma, but Emma, Emma's so like, <laughs> She's yeah, it's, it's Emma's so like, as a novel, it's so light, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's almost too whimsical to be, to, to be like a serious novel. Like, you know, in, in the, in the way that people take Jane Eyre, Emma is not that, you know, yeah. Emma, Emma's more, um, fluff, fluffy. Yeah. But yeah, they're real world issues and consequences here with this one. Yeah. For me, yeah, because I think about, I guess, the whole realm of the literature and, and especially with YA novels and how females are portrayed and, and often just vying for male attention and things like that. I <laughs> So taking in view all of that stuff, I really think that Jane Eyre is one of the the strongest female characters out there. And I can understand, I understand, I am listening to the people who say that, you know, she was manipulated by this guy and then she goes back to her abuser. I understand what you're saying. So does Bella Swan. Ugh. She's terrible. She's terrible. The only I like New Moon, which is the second one, because Edward is gone and she like becomes her own person actually with Jacob. So that's why I'm more of a Team Jacob than Team Edward. But with Jane, uh, with (laughs) with Jane, maybe we should do one of those. No, I still yeah, maybe we should with Jane. I I have to look at her entire life and just how she grew up, all of this adversity, this hatred towards her, sh- no love. She finds someone who loves her in Helen, and then that's tragically taken away. She falls in love with this man, and then she finds out that he's already married. And when given the proposal to be with him, but just in a sinful way, she sticks to her morals, her values, her um, you know her Christian morals, and she leaves when offered a chance to basically serve God in, a, in another capacity other than teaching and go to another world she accepts but won't you know give up again her belief systems just another with with love and so I just feel like um, she's a really strong character and that's why I, I love her as well as Scarlett O'Hara and Scarlett has <laughs> her own issues and fallbacks and failures and uh, flaws but I think both of them are just so strong because they're able to deal with all of these terrible things in their life, this tale of woe, I think, that their life is made up of, and they come out on the other side, and, and they're stronger for it, and they stay to their true to their own person. So that's why I feel like she really ranks up there in literature as a, as a heroine. Right. But I know that I'm preaching to the choir because Tom does not agree with me. Well, Tom, we're... we're <laughs> what about... Um... She, the glass menagerie. Oh my goodness! Uh, uh, not Laura? Amanda. Amanda. Laura. Amanda was the mother. Yeah. Um, Laura. Laura. Yeah. I mean, because well, like I, I think about her. Yeah, like like I said, I'm trying now. I'm just on this. Yeah. Tr- on my me- my mind is basically going. Who's got a female character? Like I brought up Nora Helmer, um, and I'm gonna save a lot about that because while that is not my pick for next time, it is on my list to talk about Ibsen and a doll's house because it has a very 
similar message in some mm-hmm. regard about independence and what a true marriage is and sure. and being your own woman and uh so there's so yeah so we'll uh but but I'll table that because like I said at some point we're going to talk about that on the show yeah. Yeah. but yeah so no so my frustration comes out of the fact that when you're teaching high school you are teaching many many male protagonists mm. and not enough women so I can't even rank her because either there aren't any more in the field or the bar is set really low. Because even some of you're right, some of the more modern ones, even they do not have the best. Like I I liked the Hunger Games, but there was a point where it's like Katniss is so reluctant to do everything that they like literally drag her into things. And you're like, when are you going to like – when are you going to have the moment? Like the moment – and she has the moment where she finally gets the strength and she finally becomes – the hero you know Mm -hmm. but it comes so late in the third book because like it's like there's always this sense of like i'm doing this because i have to i'm doing this to survive i'm doing this because they have to they're dragging me in and and then it's finally like her sister's death and she finally stands up to and puts an arrow through julianne moore and it's like (laughs) because i can't remember the character i couldn't remember her name it's not snow because snow is the other um yeah but like even she, who is a strong female protagonist, is saddled with this whole like constant doubt and constant doubt and constant doubt, which male characters have, but get seem to get over quicker, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so that's so that's the thing. Like we need stronger women protagonists, More, or we yeah. need people to find the ones that are there. And put them and, and put them on reading lists and put them out there and put them in the hands of boys and girls sure. to read. Because honestly, if I'm on my soapbox about it, that is going to help, especially in terms of boys, that is going to help their views of girls and women going down the line. If you mm-hmm. see women in a context of strength and in in various regards and not being subservient and not being weaker and not needing to be rescued and all those other things so you know and 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 the the sooner you get that with boys the sooner they understand that they're that there's no difference and we don't have this toxic masculinity so we need right. more we need more female protagonists on curricula we need more we need more books where where women and girls are are the lead yep Okay, well, the last question, I guess, is would you teach this? To a lower-level student, no, because it's Mm -hmm. too hard for them. Yeah. To AP English, uh, the 19th century English novel that I am choosing for my my class to read this year in the third quarter is Frankenstein. But uh, along with every major work for the quarter, I do an independent novel. So like so for instance, second quarter we're doing nineteen eighty four and they are gonna choose a dystopian piece of dystopian literature to read along with it, and they're doing a comparative literature paper at the end of the semester. I'm gonna do the same thing with Frankenstein. Jane Eyre will be on that list. Here's the reason. The college board loves this novel. It is on the AP lit test. 
a lot. Like I have been flipping through old multiple choice. I've been flipping through. There's there's always some Hardy. There's some Bronte. There's specifically Jane Eyre. There's like they love throwing the Victorians and the Romantics at you. So I have to hit this in some way, either this or something else from the era. So I went ahead. So so it's an independent novel. Um, I see its place in English survey courses and stuff like this, but. Um, but you'd have to teach it to an advanced class if you were going to teach it because the lower level student will not even yeah they will not get it at all they're not going to yeah. see anything they're not going to be able to understand it yeah i would say 11 through 12 i'd i'd do it um 10 maybe i think in advanced 10 maybe but, yeah, but certainly yeah and i'm level. talking about like the the class, ap lit is senior year so yeah but like i said the college and that's college board literature base isn't it sorry is an ap uh, English-based, uh, British literature? In the Virginia Standards curriculum, it is an English literature course, but it, we play very fast and loose with the definition of English literature, of, of what goes into literature, because I want, because we want to get a little bit more variety in terms of looking at the college board, because the college board's um, not following that, so they will they will put American authors and stuff on there as well. So I do a, I do a mishmash of, of a bunch of stuff and don't feel the need to do like all British lit all year. For instance, I'm doing Beloved, which is not a British oh, novel. Heads. Although I am doing Macbeth, you know, and um, mm-hmm. and some of the independent novel choices are not necessarily British. Like on the dystopian lit part is Fahrenheit, gotcha. and Bradbury was American, and and so yeah, so it, you you could encounter this, but yeah, it's got to be a, it's it's an upper level thing, totally upper level thing. Well, this now leads us into feedback, right? Yes. yes. Would you like to read it since I've been I talking? I will. And um, as I think I was just about to say, don't you think I've talked more than you have this yeah. episode? <laughs> I thought you'd be proud. It was of your synopsis. <laughs> I know. Well, I was just trying to talk more yeah. than you. It's not hard. It's not. Um, that's hard. It is. I, I never shut up. <laughs> Um, okay, so we got an email from from uh, our, our Scholastic Book buddy, Robert oh. Ward. And uh, I will say that in the time that we've been recording, he has left us some really excellent Facebook comments about March. But I'm going to shelve those for, for next episode because his he his email about Element OP is, uh, is it's a big one. So it is, it's a big one. So, so we'll, we'll spend this time with you, him now. And then, and then we'll go, we'll, we'll do, we'll do some more um, next time, but here we go. I will try to get through the whole thing without stopping, but maybe we'll stop at certain points just to comment if we feel necessary. Okay. Dear, dear steadfastly stunning and stellar Stella (laughs) and Tom. Hello again. As shocking as it may sound, I actually finished Ella Minop on time and was anxiously awaiting your episode this month. That's not to say I didn't procrastinate, because I did. Reading about Ella, I was instantly hooked and knew this was one pick I couldn't pass up. I've always loved wordplay and occasionally learning the bizarre origins of words, so this sounded as though it may be a fun read. English can be such an interesting hodgepodge of words. I figured a book that explicitly plays with letters and word usage would be right up my alley, and I wasn't disappointed. It was fun, as you two stated, and interesting, though not funny in the slightest. That was actually a pretty big gripe for me. On the back cover, the Dallas Morning Herald states, This exceptional, zany book will quickly make you laugh. I never laughed, not even a single chuckle. 
I felt like in some ways I was sold on a false bill of goods. It was an enjoyable book, but I not once thought it was funny or quite a light stepping commentary on censorship and totalitarianism. <laughs> I, I'm going to put his email on hold and kind of agree with him. Like I found parts of it like where I, I think I did chuckle at parts of it, especially toward the beginning, because it was kind of silly to see them try to manipulate the language. But this isn't like, you know, the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or anything, you know, I'm not like laughing my butt off at it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where the Dallas morning Herald is coming from, but zany. Anyway, uh, I was drawn with deadly in with deadly seriousness, like what seriousness while Mark Dunn weaved and what I thought was a fairly great satirical, but absurdist bite at religious zealotry. After finishing, I tried to look up more about Dunn, particularly in regards to spirituality, but couldn't find anything. Admittedly, I'm an atheist, and while I can be rather harsh toward religion, it's not as if I find it without some redemption. Uh, parentheses. If I were ever to take up Rob Kelly's offer of trying podcasting myself by guesting on Pod Dylan, Saved would be one of my choices to cover. And, and if I may plug... Rob's podcast, Pod Dylan, it's an excellent podcast. And he recently had on his show Joan Osborne, who, of course, uh, back in the mid-90s sang the uh, the hit, uh, you know, What If God Was One of Us and stuff. So he had her on as a guest. Yes, that he, song was at the end of it. Yeah, he, he, um, he had her on as a guest because she just released an album of Dylan covers. And I'm like looking at that and I'm like, wait, Rob, Rob you it just it, it blew my mind. I was like, wow, that is awesome. Anyway, so Pod Dylan, it's over on the Fire and Water Podcast Network run by Rob Kelly and some other guy. Uh, whatever Dunn's personal beliefs are, regardless, I still enjoyed Ella. We're back in uh, Robert's email. One big problem I always have with fantasy books is not destroying the illusion. Ella was much the same way. I have to always have to wonder how much thinking am I really allowed? It seems like I'm always overthinking details and destroying the magic by bringing it too much real life. As comic book fans, I think you and I can agree. Are you there? I am. Okay, I'm sorry. I, what, no, I'm I had a moment of paranoia that we dropped the call. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Lord, no. I'm just trying to think through what he's saying here. I, he... Okay. Um, I actually had this discussion today Today, last last couple of days with students about superheroes. Because uh, we were talking about Superman. They were like, how does she not know she's Superman? And I'm like, I had to explain that he's hiding in plain sight. That sure. that Batman wears a mask. Spider-Man wears a mask. Green Arrow wears a mask. Iron Man, Superman does not wear a mask. Nobody knows he has a secret identity. And it's not until she eventually like should figure it out after she's been around him and Clark long enough. But like at first glance, she's not going to know. And of course, you have that great scene in Superman the movie where Reeve like really transforms himself into Superman between Clark Kent. It's like really well done. But I think that's kind of like what he's getting at. Like you know, sometimes when you try to enter, like, well, how could that? I, that can't possibly work in the real world. And we jokingly say it, and I have to credit Michael Bailey with this because comic books. You know, you just yeah. go with it—the suspension of disbelief that Batman can swing around Gotham City all night and not have his arms get tired. Whereas I watch American Ninja Warrior, and those guys try to do that for six minutes and they fall off the obstacle. Okay. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that's true. I mean, I sometimes wonder about that 
when we teach literature, you know, just diving, you know, metaphor, simile, symbolism, yeah. look at the word usage and, yeah. and, you know, do we go too much into detail and like not pull back and just see like the beauty of the language and of the work as a whole? Like mm -hmm. I, I can see it that way. If that's also yeah. what he's saying. Do we get too much, do we get wrapped up too much in the subtext and the literal, the figurative meaning to not enjoy what's literally there in front of us? Right. Which I think you can, which can happen as an English teacher. I appreciate the amb – I'm going to get back to his email here. I appreciate the ambiguity as to leaving the current time of the world in Ella open-ended, but I think there is no way the book can be current day, 2000s, must take place in the 1960s or 70s. Given the absurdity, I know we can't analyze too much as we would then be accused of overthinking and destroying the fantasy, as I've already stated, but here we go. At the end of the book, they explicitly mention that they ran the question of shortest possible sentences with every letter on a computer – I believe that as such, the setting must be in the early days of computers. Nollip is shown and is stated as being a good deal technologically backward society. However, as more advanced as technology goes, it would be harder to remain isolated and thus be a pseudo-period piece. Japan famously was an isolationist country but could not remain so as technology progressed. Robert does have a point there, but at this and at the same time, it did take Americans pointing their guns at Japan to open Japan up, but that's a whole history discussion. The same is with Nollip. As modern technology progresses, it would be harder to prevent outside interference. Oh, sure, as the recent news story regarding the slaughter of indigenous people in Brazil by gold miners proves, there are still isolated pockets of humanity that are, you know, that are technologically, you know, completely behind. But Nollip is only 21 miles off the coast of South Carolina and not deep in South American rainforests. I can't help but think in all seriousness, there's absolutely no way this tiny island can remain in its current state. Nollip is bound to lose its independence or forcibly propelled to catch up with the rest of the world. I'm no sociologist, sure, but isolationism is impossible in the face of development. That's where I read it, at least. I imagine the outside world in wonderful clothes that would be shared by plaid stallions. I love that site and sideburns just to die for. I've mostly always been a mark for period pieces and costume dramas, though, so maybe it's just me. Another example of thinking too much would be in regards to Tom's hypothetical, what would happen to them? I agree that with Tom, is it is very well possible that there could be a very tiny fanatical tribe that's mute by choice, but only by the novel's logic. While reading the novel, my cynicism couldn't be helped, and I kept thinking that there was a possibility for a really bleak end where the Nollip Council's religious zealotry was going to lead the inhabitants lead to the inhabitants' extinction. People would continue to flee, but eventually the select few that tried to stay would be incapable of supporting themselves and just die. For a crack at censorship and totalitarianism, you have to admit that would be one hell of a way to mock them. I believe even it even as it is, there is no future. I think Nollop is done for, and it would be nearly impossible to recover. There were people who tried to kill themselves in a complete resignation of all of the council, but the stigma and shame will continue. Eventually, an extinction would be inevitable, as no one will be able to face what had occurred. They all lack the backbone. That is pretty dark when you think about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Last couple of paragraphs. I would also like to propose an alternate possibility. What if this all was a land grab scheme? I'm talking a full Lex Luthor in cinema scheming for a property evil plan, which is kind of funny because I was just mentioning Superman the movie. 
the thought was as prominent in my mind as them all dying out, but I couldn't help theorize that there could be very well a sinister puppet master behind the scenes pulling the council's string, strings, playing off their zealotry in the hopes that eventually, after they all died out, all that we left would be him, Lex Luthor, with a nice stack of property seized by the Nalp government that he could then transfer to himself. As so, like Palpatine, essentially. Oh, just yeah, like puppet, he's the master, he's yeah. the puppet master, and like you sure. know, yeah, you know, that's not a bad idea. It's very. I mean, they were doing that anyways. Remember, they were seizing. Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 I think I brought up the uh, the crucible and how like you know very often in the crucible it's not necessarily like religious virtue that this is making these people accuse each other of witchcraft as so much as it is a property dispute here and there. As far as masterminds, back to Robert's email. As far as mastermind plots, there's there were more outrageous ones out there. I'm sure the two of you will think I'm being way too ridiculous here, but that's a twist ending that could add another layer of satire. The length some would go to out of greed for personal profit. Come on, you have to admit that a Lex Luthor type sealed away and pu- just pulling strings so an entire society can collapse would be largely unexpected and an invoking of emotions. I just think it would be hilarious if ultimately the point was that the council were nothing more than self-righteous fools that got too big for their britches a la Animal Farm and manipulated as such destructiveness was bound to have an originating source and not just manifesting itself by a blind and irrational faith. This seems to be running long, so I'll wrap it up. I ordered March and I'm expecting it next week. Hopefully I'll be able to finish it in a timely manner that won't delay me starting the next episode too long. Hopefully my next email won't be so groan-inducing. I don't think this is grown inducing. I no, see, I like it's all insightful. you and I both loved LMNOP so much. Yeah, and I really like. I just I, I found the the Lex Luthor paragraph amusing because um, you and I are comic fans anyway, so we are always looking for the big bad behind like sure. what's going on. Like you know, who really is behind? You know, is who is it? Is it Parallax? Is it the Anti Monitor? Is it Dark Side? Is it? Uh, I'm not even going to order the Doomsday Clock, but is it like you know? Is it Dr. Manhattan and Ozymandias, like who's the villain, you know? And, and so when he's, when he's talking about that, like I totally see where he's coming from. And that would have been, if, if he wanted to go like a little more farcical and satirical, he totally could have gone that way with the novel, but he, he kept it within its own boundaries and it, it, it still worked. So, but I, I really did appreciate that. Cause that was fun to, that was fun to read. But do you think, do you really think that Nalp could have existed? Um, isolated in today's modern world as long as they didn't get any cell phones shipped over there that's an excellent point because even yeah that is a, that is an excellent point it seems like everybody has a cell phone much to our yeah. chagrin as teachers Indeed. <laughs> all right well thank you robert um again you guys you can email us at required reading uh cast at gmail.com um uh or go to the facebook page and leave a comment and or leave a comment on the blog um and by the way uh, we have been fairly regularly about, I think, about once a week now, here or there, writing reviews of books that you and I have read. And I know that I wrote a couple, uh, and, and I knew you wrote a couple, and I'm, I know I've got one that I'm prepping for, you know, a couple weeks from now. So, uh, so, so check out the blog on the regular, um, and, and and comment on those and stuff like that because uh, we certainly enjoy writing these very short reviews of books we read and, and can recommend. So, but I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, the only thing we have next, actually, is I'm going to pass the football back to you because you get to tell us what we will be reading next time. 
I'm going to keep it in relatively the same time period. Whoa. Oh, I know. Because our next episode comes out in December. I'm feeling seasonal. I'm feeling festive. And you and I are going to talk about Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. <laughs> oh, man. What a hypocrite. And if I are. may, it's the I will say this. This is the only Charles Dickens story I have ever really liked. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I do enjoy this story. Um, it's it's a it's essentially I don't know if it's an it's a novel. It's not very long. It's I think I think it would qualify as like a novella. It just 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 a plug at a fellow podcaster who's a great guy, uh, Gene Hendricks, uh, of of Two True Freaks, uh, and and his his uh, show the Hammer Strikes Hammer podcast did in episode number nine of the Hammer Strikes, which is his podcast, read A Christmas Carol, like cover to cover, and he did an excellent job. So if you're interested in listening to just somebody read the book, like as far as sort of like audio book, even though it's just him reading it, uh, Gene did a great job. So I would I would definitely plug episode nine of the Hammer Strikes. But um, yeah, so we're going to talk about A Christmas Carol. So, um, you know, get your get your get your mittens, get your fingerless gloves on your tiny Tim crutch, your, your stovepipe hat and, and your, your ball, your and, ball chain. and chain and, and your bah humbug. Yeah. And that's maybe your heart will go three sizes. That's a different story, but that's a different story, different yeah. story, but same, same conceit. Right. So, yeah, I guess so. but yeah, I think, I think it'll be fun because we could talk about that story's influence on other tales of Christmas time. Oh my goodness! No, seriously. I know where you're going. You're going with the Teen Titans. Story. No, no, no. I'm not talking about. Um, oh, the 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 um, uh, a swinging Christmas Carol. Yes. That that's a fun thing, but that like I, the it's it's hard to it's hard to look at because of the way Nicardi draws Donna Troy, and you're just like, no, I can't. But uh, it is that's a fun that's a fun comment. No, I was talking about like not not direct adaptations. Although we can talk about that because it's definitely something you have to address when you're talking about Christmas Carol. I'm talking about how like that story and that type of story has influenced other types of stories like that. Like for instance, like the ghosts visiting him, like how, what influences have have on like, you know, it's a wonderful life. And, um, or, or the Grinch, like where there's a story about somebody who hates Christmas and tries to destroy it or is just all like, you know, um, but like, you know, something happens to him to make him, you know, save the day at the end and things like that. So just kind of see, seeing what the influence of Charles Dickens story is, because it's probably his best known story. So, yeah, yeah so we're going, we're, we're going to back to England. Jolly yes. Good. Jolly good. Pip, pip, cheerio. So until then, until then, make sure your turkeys are stuffed. All you can feel now is mere pity. Pity. You can't spend your life on the mere wreckage of a man. You're young and fresh. You want to get married. Don't send me away. Please don't send me away. You think I want to let you go? The months went past. He came to see the light once more, as well as to feel its warmth. To see first the glory of the sun, 
And then the mild splendor of the moon, and at last the evening star. And then one day, when our firstborn was put into his arms, he could see that the boy had inherited his own eyes as they once were, large, brilliant, and black. Listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. I see a flame in the palm of your hand. Oh, sister, you're peenish and puny and spoiled and bland. Oh, sister... No principles, you have no taste. Your education was truly a waste. Don't be upset, girls, this has to be faced. Sweet sister. I see a man in your future, my dear. Auspicious. But his claims of title and wealth, I fear, are fictitious. You marry the scoundrel, and soon after that, you bear him a child, and then you get fat. Lucky for you, he leaves both of you flat. Dear lady, I see a journey you're Oh, sister, believe me, my child, it's a fatal mistake. Oh, sister, the road holds great danger, you better stay here. There's someone you long to be close to, my dear. He is not so far out of reach as you fear. Dear sister. And who might he be, mother? I'm getting tired of this masquerade. Oh, sister, do you forgive me for this odd charade? Dear sister. (laughs) But uh, if you're interested in hearing a really good audio (laughs) version of it, you all right? Virginia Slims got me down. Okay, I'm good now.
Stella's gonna start talking like this soon. Yeah, Carol Channing. Give me my okay. cigarettes. Like, why can't smoke in here? Um. Anyway, do you do the stuffing inside? Oh wait, Stella doesn't cook. No, I don't. I just wait for others to serve me. I'm Mr. Rochester, and everyone else is Jane Eyre. <laughs> so you're secretly married. You were secretly no, married this entire time. This entire time. Uh, and in my one-bedroom apartment lives a crazy man. Yeah. Thanksgiving Thanksgiving is a couple weeks away from this release. Uh, do, you, do you have, like, prefer a turkey prepared a certain way? I, I, I just enjoy, like, straight up, like, roasted in the oven turkey stuffing outside the bird. Um, I drop it in one of those things where people the fryer because it explodes, you know, and people get in. Yeah, yeah, I've had I've had fried turkey. No, I'm just kidding. I haven't. I've had it before. Smoked turkey. Smoked turkey. I I do enjoy smoked turkey. Um. Yeah. Uh, I've had deep fried turkey. I enjoy it, but I I do like. Did you drop it in there? No. I did not drop it. I I helped. I you know I helped, but kind of stood around and watched it while I you know had a couple of beers, but um. But uh, but nobody got hurt because we were all like you know practicing safety and we're far away from a house. That's good. So, um, well, because people make stupid mistakes, like like they drop it in frozen. You're not supposed to do that. And then it yeah, because you're supposed to thaw the turkey before. Um, yeah, but no, I, I like I part of me with Thanksgiving is the sides too, stuffing and mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, pie, pumpkin, pumpkin pie. pie, apple pie. Yeah. yeah. So good. I don't have to go. I, I go to my in-laws, and I don't have to deal with anybody else. Oh, it's gonna that's be too fun. bad. No, it's going to be fun. I always enjoy Thanksgiving with my in-laws. It's it's great. So your parents don't come down. Do your parents interact with your so, in-laws? Sometimes we we do stuff together, but not on the regular. Okay. So no, I I will well, tell you. I, I will. I'll tell. I'll talk to you off. I can talk to you off mic about that. Uh, we oh, did. Okay. We did do it. Yes, we did it. We got through. So. We got through this. So um, yes. So thank you. Thank you. Good night. Yes, good night to you. Have a good Friday. Oh, I I thought we were still on the. Oh, I I was saying good night to the audience. I thought we were still on. I didn't know. I I I thought we were. I thought we were on the air. No, no, all right. But then you went on your tangent. Yeah, 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 kill kill the Thanksgiving tangent, or 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 get it, or or find a way to cut that. Okay, so we're off. Um, no, I was going to say my my parents. (laughs) Good night. You always say good night. Thank you.